starting in Oakland. In 1967, Newton shot and killed a cop during a traffic stop. In 68, Eldridge Cleaver, who headed the Panthers' Ministry of Information, was in a firefight during which he and two cops suffered gunshot wounds and a 17-year-old Panther was killed. That same year, the violence found its way to Los Angeles as gunfights led to four Panther deaths. By 1969, the Panthers had been involved in more than a dozen shootouts with police, some the result of ambushes. Fearing infiltration by informants, the party began to implode, purging members, and in one notorious case, torturing and killing a 19-year-old member suspected of being a snitch. Their paranoia was far from unfounded. Hoover's FBI chalked up the internal strife not to mention the rash of deaths, as a victory. COINTELPRO promised the violent repudiation of what Hoover had dubbed a hate-type organization. The Bureau's strategy was merciless, its results disastrous but effective. In Chicago, famously, the FBI recruited William O'Neill, recently charged with impersonating a federal officer and driving a stolen car across state lines to infiltrate the Panthers' Illinois chapter, forgiving those charges in exchange for his services. Soon, O'Neill became the personal bodyguard for Fred Hampton, the chapter's chairman. O'Neill's post allowed him to provide the Bureau with a steady stream of intelligence, including detailed floor plans of Hampton's apartment, Although he found no evidence that Hampton or the group posed a threat to anyone's safety, O'Neill continued to inform. In December 1969, days, coincidentally, after Manson was charged in the Tate-LaBianca murders, O'Neill slipped a barbiturate into Hampton's drink over dinner. By the end of the night, the police had raided Hampton's apartment and shot him twice in the head at point-blank range. O'Neill was one of many such informants around the country, and Hampton's death, one of many such deaths. The FBI's role may never have come to light if not for the Citizens Committee to investigate the FBI, an audacious crew of activist burglars who took it upon themselves to break into a small FBI field office in Medea, Pennsylvania, just west of Philadelphia. One night in March 1971, the group took a crowbar to that office's deadbolted door, stuffing suitcases with papers revealing the FBI's domestic spying, which they soon parceled out to the press. Hoover was in high dudgeon. The group's methods were straight out of the FBI playbook. They'd cased the office for months, sending in a woman disguised as a college student to get a sense of the building's security. In his fury, Hoover allocated some 200 agents to track down the burglars, but they were never found. Only in 2014 did they reveal themselves. They were motivated, they said, by a sense that the government had lied to them about Vietnam and that conventional protests had proven useless. The existence of COINTELPRO was the single most earth-shaking revelation in the stolen documents among which was Hoover's incendiary 67 COINTELPRO memo, the one in which he pledged to discredit and neutralize leftist organizations. With his pet project exposed, Hoover took steps to end COINTELPRO, but the burglary inaugurated a spate of whistleblowing that undermined the FBI's credibility over the next few years. 
Congressman Hale Boggs, the House Majority Leader, compared the FBI to the secret police, conceding that even Congress lived in fear of them, and that they'd hastened the growth of a vine of tyranny. Lawsuits brought under the Freedom of Information Act forced the Attorney General to reveal more incriminating FBI files. By 1975, anti-intelligence sentiment was so high that Congress formed a committee to scrutinize the Bureau. Led by Senator Frank Church of Idaho, the committee's investigation exposed FBI duplicity on a scale that had been unthinkable even after the Pennsylvania burglary. The Church Committee's findings, published in 76, gave the nation its first glimpse of the astonishing success that Hoover's counterintelligence operation had seen. As reported in the New York Times that May, the committee's final report determined that FBI headquarters approved more than 2,300 actions in a campaign to disrupt and discredit American organizations ranging from the Black Panthers to Antioch College, and that the Bureau may have violated specific criminal statutes in pursuing actions that involved risk of serious bodily injury or death to targets. The Church Committee noted that COINTELPRO encompassed a staggering range of targets and that the FBI's deployment of dangerous, degrading, or blatantly unconstitutional techniques appears to have become less restrained with each subsequent program. Hoover had specifically requested that these techniques be imaginative and hard-hitting. And they were. The FBI tried seemingly everything, from gossip to gunfights. The Bureau mailed pejorative articles and newspaper clippings to college administrators. Its agents tried to destroy marriages by writing unsigned, malicious, rumor-mongering letters. They smeared leftists as informants when they weren't, and they stoked the flames of internecine conflicts until they grew into feuds. The committee detailed several of the FBI's exploits in Los Angeles, and by now I wasn't surprised by the scope of the mayhem. The operations described, especially the deadly ones, were equal parts sophisticated and reckless, with the Bureau taking great pains to install informants and incite violence with no care for the consequences. I looked for any signs of Manson, no matter how tangential, any pattern among law enforcement, any familiar name. The most conspiratorial possibility, of course, would be that the FBI had carefully groomed Manson and pressed him into service as a COINTELPRO informant. But I knew that was the longest of long shots. And if the facts didn't lead me there, I had no desire to force the connection. Given the FBI's sloppiness, I wondered if Manson could have been implicated in other, more indirect ways, willingly or not. Maybe he wasn't an informant, but had been close to someone who was. Maybe someone like Reeve Whitson had influenced his actions from two or three degrees of removal. Maybe someone at the sheriff's office had assisted the FBI. I was encouraged by one simple fact. The FBI had behaved conspiratorially with COINTELPRO, early and often. One of its greatest coups came in January 1969, when G-Men had incited the murders of two Black Panthers on the UCLA campus, FBI infiltrators had lied to the Panthers' rivals, the US organization, 
telling them that the Panthers were meeting on the campus to plan their assassinations. Us responded by ambushing two Panthers at a black student union meeting and shooting them dead. LASO knew that the Panthers were murdered because of the FBI's meddling. They didn't care. In fact, they hid the FBI's role in the violence. In their eyes, the most desirable outcome had been achieved. Two Panthers were dead, three US gang members were in jail, and the American public was more fearful of black militants. The FBI used the incident to spur more violence between US and the Panthers. According to a 1970 memo from the Los Angeles field office, the Los Angeles division is aware of mutually hostile feelings harbored between the organizations and the first opportunity to capitalize on the situation will be maximized. It is intended that the US Inc. will be appropriately and discreetly advised of the time and location of BPP, Black Panther Party, activities, in order that the two organizations might be brought together and thus grant nature the opportunity to take her due course. That emphasis comes from the church committee, who noted that due course in this case meant nothing less than first-degree murder. The committee's final report blasted the FBI for its complicity in the deaths of the Panthers. The chief investigative branch of the federal government engaged in lawless tactics and responded to deep-seated social problems by fomenting violence and unrest, it wrote. Equally disturbing is the pride which those officials took in claiming credit for the bloodshed that occurred. Indeed, it seemed that whenever the FBI made headway with its tactics, it doubled down. Rather than halt its provocations as the Panthers and the US organization claimed each other's lives, the FBI escalated the campaign, spreading propaganda, including political cartoons designed to inflame the violence. The FBI viewed this carnage as a positive development, the church committee wrote. Maybe the most lacerating testimony came from William Sullivan, a high-ranking FBI official who'd helped implement COINTELPRO before Hoover fired him in 1971. Sullivan had masterminded an episode in which Coretta Scott King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s wife, received a recording in which her husband could be heard flirting with other women. Sullivan had deemed King a fraud, demagogue, and scoundrel. Now, before the church committee, he allowed that the FBI's ruthless pragmatism had obscured any sense of morality he and his colleagues might have had. Never once, he said, did I hear anybody, including myself, raise the question, is this course of action which we have agreed upon lawful? Is it legal? Is it ethical or moral? The one thing we were concerned about was this. Will this course of action work? Will it get us what we want? COINTELPRO's excesses were well documented, but the FBI's director, Clarence M. Kelly, who'd succeeded Hoover, refused to admit wrongdoing, defending the operations as a necessary precaution against violent extremists who hoped to bring America to its knees. He added, for the FBI to have done less under the circumstances would have been an abdication of its responsibilities to the American people. Lined up against the wall with the rest of the whites. When Hoover reconstituted COINTELPRO, 
He was already worried that America's black militants would be embraced by liberal whites, especially in a left-leaning place like Hollywood. In the August 1967 memo reanimating the counterintelligence program, he'd noted the importance of preventing militant black nationalist groups and leaders from gaining respectability. They must be discredited to the white community, both the responsible community and to the liberals who have vestiges of sympathy for militant black nationalists simply because they are Negroes. Two years later, the Panthers had become almost synonymous with Hollywood's liberal elite. Actresses such as Jane Fonda and Jean Seberg appeared at their rallies. Hoover felt he had to widen the chasm between blacks and whites in Los Angeles. In a November 1968 memo, an L.A. field agent discussed new efforts to spread disinformation to Hollywood's liberal whites. In the context of the Tate-LaBianca murders, the memo was chilling. Remember, the Tate House by then had become a high-profile gathering place for liberal Hollywood. Among others, for Fonda, Cass Elliott, and Warren Beatty all three of whom were under FBI surveillance. Abigail Folger, who would die at the hands of the family, was an outspoken civil rights activist. That year, she campaigned for Tom Bradley, the first African-American candidate for mayor of Los Angeles. Many in the Polanski-Tate crowd belonged to the White Panther Party, explicit allies of the Black Panthers, or to the Peace and Freedom Party of California, which also voiced its support. The FBI, according to the memo, planned to generate distrust through disinformation. The Peace and Freedom Party, PFP, has been furnishing the BPP with financial assistance. An anonymous letter is being prepared for bureau approval to be sent to a leader of PFP, in which it is set forth that the BPP has made statements in closed meetings that when the armed rebellion comes, the whites in the PFP will be lined up against the wall with the rest of the whites. The FBI would make it seem as if even sympathetic leftists were in the Panthers' crosshairs. Less than a year after this memo was written, Manson's followers lined up four denizens of liberal Hollywood in Roman Polanski's home and cut them to pieces, leaving slogans in blood to implicate the Black Panthers. Of course the FBI couldn't have done this work alone. They needed local law enforcement on their side, and according to the church committee, they got it. The committee looked into one of the most notorious COINTELPRO actions in L.A., the framing of Gerard Geronimo Pratt, a Black Panther and a decorated Vietnam vet. Pratt would be imprisoned for 27 years for a murder the FBI knew he didn't commit. He was in Oakland at the time of the crime, 400 miles away at a Black Panther house that the Bureau had wiretapped. It had transcripts of a call he'd made to the Panther headquarters in Los Angeles just hours before the murder. Still, Bureau agents enlisted a federal informant to lie on the stand about Pratt's involvement. Even before the frame-up, FBI gunmen had attempted to kill Pratt by shooting at him through the window of his apartment. He survived only because a spine injury he'd sustained in the war made it more comfortable to sleep on the floor. 
Pratt was serving a life sentence when the church committee released its landmark findings, confirming what he'd long suspected. LASO and the LAPD were complicit in the COINTELPRO operation. The committee quoted a report that the FBI's Los Angeles outpost had sent to Hoover himself, advising that, the Los Angeles field office of the FBI is furnishing on a daily basis information to the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office Intelligence Division and the Los Angeles Police Department Intelligence and Criminal Conspiracy Divisions concerning the activities of black nationalist groups in the anticipation that such information might lead to the arrest of the militants. By the Church Committee's estimation, this meant that Los Angeles law enforcement was guilty of obstructing justice and hindering prosecution. Manson the Race Warrior If there was a bridge between the family and COINTELPRO, I thought it probably stemmed from this basic fact. Charles Manson was a racist. According to Greg Jacobson, Manson sincerely believed that the black man's sole purpose on earth was to serve the white man. Another member of the family recalled that Manson looked forward to the day when, having survived the apocalyptic race war, he could scratch Blackie's fuzzy head and kick him in the butt and tell him to go pick the cotton. And at the start of 69, as COINTELPRO provoked black militants in LA, Manson's bigotry reached a delusional fever pitch. He became convinced seemingly without a shred of evidence, that the Black Panthers were spying on the family at the Spawn Ranch, planning an attack on him. His paranoia mounting, Manson placed armed guards at every entrance to the ranch, sending lookouts to the mountains with powerful telescopes. His fear was self-fulfilling in a way. On July 1, 1969, during a dispute over drug money in a Hollywood apartment, Manson shot Bernard Lotsa Papa Crow, a black drug dealer. According to Helter Skelter, the dealer had told Manson that he was a panther and that his brothers would come and get Manson at the ranch if he didn't pay up. Manson shot Crow in the chest and fled the scene, believing he'd killed the dealer. Back at the ranch, Manson was sure that Crow's friends were readying their attack. In Bugliosi's account, this contributed to Manson's decision a month later to speed along the race war by inciting helter-skelter. The Tate-LaBianca murders would sow racial discord. But Bernard Crow wasn't a Black Panther, and he survived after Manson shot him. Bugliosi even called him to the stand during the trial. Bugliosi chalked it up to a misunderstanding on Manson's part, but the more I thought about it, especially in light of what I'd learned about COINTELPRO, the more I wondered if there was more to the story. The prosecutor reported that Manson was already frightened of the Black Panthers before the Crow shooting. If Manson were truly scared of the Panthers, the last thing he would have done is shot a man whom he believed to be a Panther, a man who'd already told his brothers where Manson lived and made a threat to kill him. True, Manson hoped to launch a race war, but he didn't want to be caught in its crossfire. That was a fate he wished on other whites, but never on himself. Furthermore, Tex Watson's girlfriend and three of Crow's friends had witnessed the shooting. They called an ambulance after Manson made his getaway. 
At the hospital, Crow refused to tell the police who'd shot him. Wouldn't the police have questioned the four witnesses? Did Crow even say who they were? Why didn't the police pursue a near-fatal shooting with plenty of witnesses, especially when the alleged shooter was a paroled ex-con? We might never know. Bugliosi doesn't clarify any of it in Helter Skelter. I'd always considered the Crow shooting an inexplicable sideshow in the Manson Circus. It took on grander proportions after I'd learned about the FBI's disinformation campaign against the Panthers. At this same time, this same place, less than a week after the Tate murders, further COINTELPRO provocations led to the shootings of three more Panthers, one of them fatal. The CIA on Domestic Soil In August 1967, the same month Hoover launched COINTELPRO, CIA Director Richard Helms inaugurated the agency's aforementioned illegal domestic surveillance program, CHAOS, which also employed agents and informants to infiltrate subversive groups and then neutralize them. CHAOS was born of Lyndon Johnson's neurosis. In the summer of 67, the president was convinced that the divided, disorderly America he led couldn't possibly be the product of his own policies. Foreign agents, and presumably foreign money, must be to blame. He ordered the CIA to prove that the nation's dissidents, and especially its anti-war movement, had their origins abroad. Richard Helms complied without hesitation. In the six years that followed, the CIA tracked thousands of Americans, insulating its information gathering so thoroughly that even those at the top of its counterintelligence division were clueless about its domestic surveillance. Chaos kept tabs on 300,000 people, more than 7,000 of them American citizens. The agency shared information with the FBI, the White House, and the Justice Department. At its peak, Chaos had 52 dedicated agents, most of whom served to infiltrate anti-war groups, like their counterparts in the FBI. Undercover, they hoped to identify Russian instigators, although they never found any. With the Interdivision Intelligence Unit, IDIU, a new branch of the Justice Department outfitted with sophisticated computerized databases, they collaborated on a list of more than 10,000 names, all thought to be dangerous activists. The IDIU produced regular reports on these people, hoping to predict their activities. The journalist, Seymour Hirsch, got wind of chaos late in 1974. He told James Jesus Angleton, the head of CIA counterintelligence, and William Coby, the director of the CIA, that he had a story bigger than me lie about CIA domestic activities. Coby was forced to admit that Hirsch's findings were accurate, and Angleton resigned from the agency. The story broke on December 22 on the front pages of the New York Times. Huge CIA operation reported in U.S. against anti-war forces, other dissidents in Nixon years. The Church Committee probed the CIA's illegal activities, as did a separate government investigation, the Rockefeller Commission. But neither was able to penetrate the agency's veil of secrecy. Since the CIA has no right to operate on American soil, 
The program should have brought even more censure than COINTELPRO. Instead, it drew only a muted response. CIA leadership stonewalled at every opportunity. Even if they hadn't, investigators were crippled by the dearth of information. When Richard Helms had disbanded chaos before leaving office in 1973, he ordered the destruction of every file pertaining to it. And since the 70s, almost nothing has come out. The operation hardly left a footprint. Even if reams of paperwork had survived, the Rockefeller Commission was hardly willing to press the agency. While the commission had made some shocking findings, evidence of wiretaps, bugging, and hidden burglaries, in addition to the extensive record-keeping mentioned a moment ago, by the end of the 70s, well after it had disbanded, allegations arose that it had suppressed information. Its chairman, Vice President Nelson Rockefeller, had worked with the CIA in the late 50s. In a memoir, former CIA Director Colby later claimed that President Gerald Ford fired him for refusing to help Rockefeller sabotage his own investigation. According to Colby, chaos was so highly classified that even he, the director of the CIA, didn't have access to it. I found it impossible to do much about whatever was wrong with chaos, he wrote. Its super-secrecy and extreme compartmentalization kept me very much on its periphery. In the spring of 78, the New York Times revealed that the investigations into chaos had been woefully inadequate. When one agent was asked why he hadn't been more forthcoming, he said simply, they didn't ask. The true extent of the agency's domestic activities against dissidents would probably never be known, the Times declared. But the paper had been able to uncover chaos activities from the late 60s that had targeted the Black Panther Party. Rockefeller's commission failed to reveal that between 150 and 200 CIA domestic files on black dissidents had been destroyed, the Times reported. The CIA conducted at least two major programs involving the use of American blacks when the Panthers, organized by young blacks in the mid-60s, were publicly advocating revolutionary change. Just how successful the CIA was in those alleged activities could not be determined. Winning Hearts and Minds Knowing more about Chaos and COINTELPRO, I felt that men like Reeve Whitson were potentially much more common than I'd anticipated, always in peripheral, undefined roles. Part of the reason that Whitson seemed like such a wild card to me was that he appeared to have walked on the scene from nowhere, an outré worldly man suddenly hobnobbing with the LAPD's top brass. I wanted others who fit that profile. To cover up an operation like chaos, the agency needed friends in law enforcement, insiders who could make arrests, or, just as important, not make arrests. The most promising but frustrating of my inquiries concerned an LAPD officer named William W. Herman. I could never connect him to Whitson or Manson, but he certainly fit the profile of someone who'd helped with counterintelligence actions. When I was deep in the weeds of my chaos research, split between feeling that I was onto something or that I was risking my credibility, Herman's was a name that came up several times usually from sources I didn't quite trust, 
or in arcane articles from the alternative press. What I heard about him was just plausible enough to get me to look closer. I'm glad I did. Herman's story hints at how intelligence agencies may have collaborated with police in Los Angeles. A longtime lieutenant with the LAPD, Herman had an unusual background for law enforcement. He had a doctorate in psychology. He specialized in quelling insurgencies. He'd developed one of the first computer systems to track criminals and predict violent outbreaks in cities. Darrell Gates, the head of the LAPD from 1978 to 1992, hailed him as a genius, praising his technical aptitude in particular. But Herman's work wasn't limited to Los Angeles, or even to the United States. My FOIA request to the FBI yielded a collection of redacted documents detailing his extensive employment history. Concurrent with his time in the LAPD, he'd worked under contract for a dizzying list of American intelligence and military agencies. The Air Force, the Secret Service, the Treasury Department, the President's Office of Science and Technology, the Institute for Defense Analysis, the Defense Industrial Security Clearance Office, and the Defense Department's Advanced Research Projects Agency. Most of his work for these groups remains classified. You'd think these projects wouldn't have left much free time, but Herman piled on even more work, taking leaves of absence from the LAPD to pursue side gigs with defense firms. These had opaque generic names like Electro-Optical Systems, System Development Corp., and Control Data Corp. This last, a weapons manufacturer in Minneapolis, relied on Herman's services for 10 years, from 1961 to 71, or so Herman told the FBI. When the Bureau went to Control Data Corp. for a background check, the company claimed that Herman never worked for them. You might have guessed. Given Herman's long list of government employers, I wondered if his work for these defense contractors could have been a front for the CIA, one of the few agencies that didn't appear on his resume. As usual, official channels were useless. My FOIA request to the CIA for Herman's records yielded the same neither-confirm-or-deny response that Reeve Whitson's had. I did find, however, a record of Herman's overseas work, much of which he conducted while still employed with the LAPD. Having spent four months in 1967 training Thai police in counterinsurgency tactics, Herman returned to Asia in September 1968 to join the U.S. effort in South Vietnam. Documents from the National Archives in College Park, Maryland, listed him as a scientific advisor to the Army. His responsibility was to train South Vietnamese police in paramilitary techniques to deploy against Viet Cong insurgents. None of the records described those techniques in any detail, but the mere mention of them was enough to make me put a few things together. The dates of Herman's stint in Vietnam, his job description, his professional affiliations, and his training made it abundantly likely that he was working for a CIA project called Phoenix, one of the most controversial elements in the agency's history. Richard Nixon had secretly authorized Phoenix in 1968. 
it was discontinued in early 71. The agency described it as a set of programs that sought to attack and destroy the political infrastructure of the Viet Cong. Inside Vietnam, Phoenix operatives waged a campaign of terror against the Viet Cong guerrillas, with tactics including the assassination and torture of non-combatant civilians. According to a 1971 congressional investigation, the program violated the codes of the Geneva Conventions and rivaled the Viet Cong's own terrorism in its mercilessness. During the Senate hearings, a number of Phoenix operatives admitted to massacring civilians and making it appear that the atrocities were the work of the Viet Cong. Their hope was to win the hearts and minds of neutral Vietnamese citizens, compelling them to turn away from the insurgency and revulsion. A special forces soldier, Anthony Herbert, the single most decorated combat veteran of Vietnam, published a best-selling book, Soldier, that detailed typical orders from his Phoenix superiors. They wanted me to take charge of execution teams that wiped out entire families and tried to make it appear as though the Viet Cong had done it themselves. The rationale was that the Viet Cong would see that other Viet Cong had killed their own and make allegiance with us, the good guys. Their attempts were sometimes even more unhinged. In 1968, CIA scientists at the Bien Hoa prison outside Saigon surgically opened the skulls of three prisoners, implanted electrodes on their brains, gave them daggers, and left them alone in a room. They wanted to shock the prisoners into killing one another. When the effort failed, the prisoners were shot and their bodies burned. According to Seymour Hersh's 1972 book, Cover Up, Phoenix had committees set up across all 44 provinces in South Vietnam. They kept blacklists of Viet Cong fighters and had strict orders to meet weekly or monthly quotas of neutralizations. The whole operation relied on computerized indices. The identity of its CIA leader never came to light. But whoever he was, he was there ostensibly as part of the Agency for International Development, AID, later revealed as a CIA front. Herman, of course, was known for his aptitude with computers, and his time in Vietnam coincided almost exactly with Phoenix's operations. The papers I found at the National Archives confirmed that he was a part of AID. I had no way to press him about any of this. He died in 1993. As I had with Whitson, I wondered whether his family could tell me more about him. I found one of his daughters, Cindy, a dog breeder in Spokane, Washington. She invited me to see her. Only a teenager in the 60s, she didn't have many memories of her father's work. But she was confident that much of it had been top secret and that he'd worked for the CIA. He never discussed his work with the family, not even her mother. She was instructed never to talk about her father with anyone, including extended family. She knew he did undercover work, both while he was with the LAPD and afterward. She showed me his passport. Visa stamps chronicled at least four trips to Vietnam between 1968 and 70. Among his ID cards was one for the Sut Niep Vietnam Cong HOA. She also shared several documents confirming Herman's participation in Phoenix. 
a framed memo from the U.S. Military Assistance Command, Vietnam, dated September 9, 1968, advised all personnel that Herman was a member of the Pacification Task Force working for Ambassador Comer. Comer, first name Robert, was nicknamed Blowtorch Bob for his take-no-prisoners approach to warfare. He served 15 years in the CIA before arriving in Vietnam to work on Phoenix. According to Senate testimony, he was behind the program's notorious kill quotas. Even Herman's ephemera captivated me. Cindy had held on to a photo of dozens of men on an airplane captioned, bad guys leaving a bad spot after having been bad. Once he returned from Vietnam, Herman retired from the LAPD after more than 20 years on the force, embarking on a series of research gigs for various federal agencies, again, all top secret. With information from Cindy, a growing pile of press clippings, and the government documents I'd amassed, I tried to piece together Herman's post-retirement projects. Whatever he'd learned in Southeast Asia, he brought it back to L.A. His work in California bore disturbing resemblances to the techniques he'd honed as part of the Phoenix Project. In 1968, Governor Reagan appointed him to head a new Riots and Disorders Task Force, dedicated to studying urban unrest and devising ways to prevent future outbreaks of violence. But in a 1970 interview, Herman revealed, maybe by accident, that the task force was hardly the research-based enterprise it claimed to be. Herman didn't give many interviews. But when he spoke to the London Observer's Charles Foley in May 1970, he was apparently in a voluble mood. Discussing his work for the task force, he described a program of spying and infiltration far exceeding the studies that the group was committed to. His words sounded as if they'd been lifted from COINTELPRO and Chaos Manuals. Both of those operations, of course, were well underway in Los Angeles. Like Governor Reagan and President Johnson, Herman believed that California's student dissidents were funded by foreign communists. He told the observer that he had a secret plan for forestalling revolution in America. The key was to split off those bent on destroying the system from the mass of dissenters, then following classic guerrilla warfare theory to find means which will win their hearts and minds. He called this plan simply Saving America, and it included strategies for deeper penetration by undercover agents into dissenting groups, such as army agents posing as students and news reporters. In a turn worthy of Minority Report, he wanted to use mathematical probability models to predict when and where violence would erupt. He also called for the use of long-range electronic surveillance devices. If informants had already penetrated any dissenting groups, they would secretly record speeches and conversations. What that information would be used for, and how, Herman didn't say. He spoke of the task force in the future tense, making it hard to discern how operational its Saving America tactics were. Whatever the case, his brazen claims generated backlash from the left. His daughter showed me a flyer from the Students for a Democratic Society depicting him as a pig. Maybe he felt he'd said too much. 
or maybe his superiors told him so. But a few months later, he gave another, more circumspect interview. Talking this time to the Sacramento Bee, he walked back some of his more chilling claims about saving America. Herman Bridles, at an article in the London Observer, the reporter wrote, quoting Herman, The council could not set up a plan like that. We have a non-operational role. All we can do is review and fund projects suggested by local authorities. Saving America sounded a lot like COINTELPRO, which sounded a lot like chaos. They all ran together in part, it seemed, because they'd all shared notes. In June 2002, the San Francisco Chronicle published an investigative series detailing Governor Reagan's secret dealings with the CIA and the FBI, all part of his effort to halt what he construed as a communist-sponsored anti-war movement in California. The Chronicle revealed an internal FBI memo from July 1969, when Herbert Ellenwood, one of the governor's top advisors, visited FBI headquarters to discuss Reagan's plans for the destruction of disruptive elements on California campuses. As the Chronicle reported, Ellenwood asked the FBI for intelligence information against protest groups. The FBI had secretly given the Reagan administration such assistance in the past. J. Edgar Hoover himself approved the request. The FBI suggested that the California state government might attack dissidents through a psychological warfare campaign. If that's what Reagan wanted, he didn't have to look far. In his own circle of advisors was Herman, the chairman of the Riots and Disorders Task Force, a veteran of Phoenix, and a man whose anti-leftist ideas jibed perfectly with the Reagan administrations in Sacramento to say nothing of the FBI's and the CIA's. In 1978, a congressional committee uncovered evidence that the CIA had operatives in at least one city's district attorney's office in the late 60s. I wondered if a similar situation existed in Los Angeles, and if so, who those operatives might have been. It wouldn't have been too difficult an agency to penetrate, at the time of the Manson murders in 1969, the district attorney of Los Angeles was Evel Younger, whose resume linked him to tons of intelligence work. Decades earlier, he'd been one of the top agents of Hoover's FBI. In 1942, he left the bureau to join the Office of Strategic Services. Trained in espionage and counterintelligence techniques, he opted to enroll in law school after the war. In the 50s, Younger was elected to the bench before becoming Los Angeles District Attorney in 1964. A staunch Republican and a friend of Governor Reagan, he was appointed head of a federal law and order task force in January 1969, organized by incoming President Richard Nixon to crack down on crime and internal threats to the nation's security. According to the 1974 book, Big Brother and the Holding Company, The World Behind Watergate, the politically ambitious Younger advised Nixon to appoint tougher judges, use more wiretaps, encourage space-age techniques and hardware, and support local police with better training and equipment. Younger's subordinates in the DA's office referred to him as the general. In his obituary, the Los Angeles Times in 1989 noted that he was 
the first prosecutor in America to undertake mass felony prosecutions of college campus demonstrations in the 1960s. He'd prosecuted students who'd protested the absence of a black studies program at San Fernando Valley State College. The November 1969 trial resulted in 20 convictions, a coup for the up-and-coming deputy DA who tried the case, Vincent Bugliosi. If the CIA wanted a presence in the Los Angeles DA's office, Younger didn't strike me as someone who'd put his foot down. Nor did his second-in-command, Lynn Buck Compton, who'd been an LAPD detective before getting his law degree and joining the DA's office. Compton was the lead prosecutor in the trial of Sirhan B. Sirhan for the assassination of Senator Robert F. Kennedy. And he'd been a World War II hero. His exploits with the Parachute Infantry Regiment, the Easy Company, were chronicled in the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers. I found a letter that Compton wrote to Herman on March 14, 1969, five months before the Tate-LaBianca murders, thanking him for obtaining good advance intelligence on subversives and militants. The two had served together on the LAPD in the 50s, so I wasn't surprised that they knew each other. I was surprised that Compton had written a note that all but proved that he and Herman were operating beyond their remit for the state of California. Neither man had any business gathering advance intelligence on subversives and militants, or on anyone else for that matter. The DA's office was supposed to prosecute crimes, not prevent them. And Herman, in his strenuous correction to the London Observer article, had stressed that his role was non-operational. CODA Front Page News I read about Chaos and COINTELPRO until I must have sounded to all my friends like a tinfoil hat-wearing conspiracy theorist, someone who might go off on a long-winded tangent about the threats of the deep state. But the fact that the CIA has become an all-purpose scapegoat the preeminent symbol of global power run amok, doesn't change the fact that its abuses of power in the 1960s were legitimate and myriad. If anything, these abuses were so gross that they've lent authority to any and every claim against federal intelligence agencies. If the CIA and the FBI are capable of killing American citizens in cold blood, often in elaborate schemes, what aren't they capable of? There had been a day in the summer of 69 when the major elements from my reporting collided on a single page of the Los Angeles Times. An August 12 article about the DA's argument in the UCLA Panther murder trial, Panther killings result of power play, jury told, ran next to a piece on the LAPD's theory that the LaBianca killers were imitating the people who'd murdered the Tate victims the night before. Police see copycat killer in slayings of Los Feliz couple. The irony was that both of these stories were wrong. The LaBianca murders weren't the work of a copycat killer, and the police should have known by then. The real power play at UCLA was perpetrated by the FBI. I was tantalized by the juxtaposition of the two items, by how much of the news in them was flawed when it was first reported and by how much of it might be flawed still. 
Manson's race war motive dovetailed almost too perfectly with the goals of these federal agencies and the DA's office. In programs like Chaos and COINTELPRO, and in people like Reeve Whitson, William Herman, and Buck Compton, I saw the potential for a major turn in my reporting, even as I tried to accept that so much of what they did would always be untraceable. Still, if nefarious plots from the CIA and FBI had eventually exploded into public view, I thought I should at least try to see where my hunches led me. What I wanted to answer was this. How did a body like the Los Angeles DA's office exert its political force? If it wanted to be of service to a higher agency, like the FBI or the CIA, would that be easily accomplished? Or was I veering too much into the realm of the paranoiac? I didn't have to look very far to see how the DA's office wielded its power. One glaring example came at the start of the Manson trial, when, without anyone being the wiser, the DA's office conspired to make sure that its narrative for the Tate-LaBianca murders was the only one that anyone ever heard. 8. The Lawyer Swap My hands were tied. When it came to prosecuting the Manson family, the Los Angeles DA's office left nothing to chance. I'd already seen that Vincent Bugliosi had no problem getting his witnesses to lie on the stand, and that Deputy DA Buck Compton gathered intelligence on subversives and militants. What I found next was evidence of more pervasive, top-down interference by the DA's office, which took extraordinary measures to control, and likely in part to fabricate, the story of the Manson murders. The first signs of misconduct came during the trial of Bobby Beausoleil. He was accused of murdering Gary Hinman, the musician who'd been found stabbed to death just days before the Tate-LaBianca murders. For reasons never disclosed by Bugliosi, the DA's office tried Beausoleil separately from the rest of the family. As I suggested earlier, it made sense to try all three of the murder cases together, Hinman, Tate, and LaBianca. Law enforcement had connected the crimes. Uniting them under a single trial would have made it easier to convict Manson of conspiracy, since he'd helped torture Hinman and had ordered all three sets of slaughters. And yet they kept the cases separate. I thought I knew why. If they'd thrown Hinman in with Tate LaBianca, the resulting testimony would have revealed that the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office, LASO, knew as early as August 10 that the Manson family was responsible for all the murders. Remember, LASO detectives Charlie Gunther and Paul Whiteley broke the Tate case when a recorded phone call from one of Hinman's murderers, Beausoleil, clued them into a link with the Tate murders. The only way to hide this early break was to try the Hinman murder case separately. Beausoleil went to trial on November 12, 1969, the prosecutor was Ronald Ross, the deputy DA in Santa Monica, who confirmed to me that the case had been tried separately under very suspicious circumstances. He had orders, he said, to keep Charles Manson and the family out of the trial. That meant that scoring a conviction against Beausoleil would be an uphill battle, since, after all, without Manson's instructions, he may never have murdered Hinman. 
Still, Ross felt he had no choice but to obey. My hands were tied, he told me. When we first spoke in 2000, he'd recently retired after 30 years in the DA's office, and the case sounded fresh in his mind. He remembered the orders from on high, don't mention the name of Manson or these other people. Ross later learned that his superiors at the DA's office and his own investigating detectives, Gunther and Whiteley, had withheld all evidence related to the Manson family from him to keep their secret. I was pissed when I learned later that they had other evidence, Ross said. I was closed out of the thing. I really don't know why they did that. He could still recall the day the case first landed on his desk, in early September 1969. He was just back from a vacation. The horrors of the Tate-LaBianca murders, then only a month old, still dominated the news. The killers remained at large, and no one even knew who they were. Ross was struck by reports that they'd left the bloody word pig in conspicuous areas of both the Tate and LaBianca homes. His Hinman murder scene featured such writing, too. He took one look at the case and immediately connected it to the unsolved Tate-LaBianca murders. You'd have to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to, he said. He called in Gunther and Whiteley to ask them about it. And they said, oh, no, no, it's not related. No, we can't find any connection between the two. He still sounded bruised when he added, now I think they were lying through their teeth. Gunther denied the allegation to me, but I found it believable, given what he'd told me about his investigation. And if it's true, it shows that by September 1969, he and Whiteley were conspiring to hide what they'd learned about the Manson family's role in the murders. Since Ross wasn't allowed to link Beausoleil to the family, his case was mostly circumstantial and, by his own admission, weak. After just two days of testimony, the trial was more or less wrapped up. Beausoleil's defense attorney, Leon Salter, didn't call a single witness. When the defense rested, Ross's superiors feared they might lose the trial. They needed more evidence. At the last minute, they decided to take a gamble. Just before the attorneys delivered their closing arguments, David Fitz, the head deputy DA of Santa Monica, and Ross's supervisor, went into a closed meeting with the judge, who emerged ten minutes later to announce that the trial would be delayed for five days to accommodate a new witness for the prosecution. Danny DiCarlo, the straight Satan's bike gang member who'd moved to the Spahn Ranch that spring of 1969. The judge's action here was unprecedented, or close to it. For one thing, the two lawyers who just rested their cases, Ross and Salter, had no say in it. Plus, as a matter of course, trials are almost never reopened after the defense has rested. It risks prejudicing the jury. When I reached Salter on the phone, he was still incensed by the choice. For the judge to discuss the case without the opposing attorney being present is just unheard of, he told me. There was just something rotten about it. I never reported it to the state bar, which I'll always regret. In the trial transcript, Salter made his objections plain. It is shocking, he told the judge, 
that when you are in the middle of a trial where this young man can end up with a life imprisonment, that the district attorney has the audacity to talk about this case without my being present. You might think that Ross wouldn't have minded the intervention so much. Fitz was his boss, after all, and they were both angling for Beausoleil's conviction. But Ross bristled at having been excluded, too. In his 30 years as a DA, he told me, he'd never been left out of a meeting about his own witness lineup. Ross felt he had no choice but to put DiCarlo on the stand. That was the first time in my whole career where I was actually ordered to use a witness, Ross said. The decision came from the highest levels of the DA's office. Fitz was taking orders from someone. My best estimate, Ross said, would be Buck Compton. Ross thought DiCarlo lacked credibility. The biker, already a convicted felon, had decided to testify only because he was facing new charges for marijuana possession and having stolen a motorcycle engine. He was, to use Ross's word, a snitch. And it was impossible to say if he was telling the truth or not. DiCarlo was simply amoral, Ross said. He could have said whatever he wanted to say. And getting something useful out of DiCarlo on the stand would be no mean feat, because Ross still wasn't allowed to introduce anything about Manson or the family, even though his new witness was a known associate of theirs. Once he was sworn in, DiCarlo relayed the story of the Hinman stabbing. He claimed he was telling it exactly as he'd heard it from Beausoleil himself. He even included the parts where a man named Charlie who lived at the Spahn Ranch, cut Hinman's ear off with a long sword, and later ordered Beausoleil to kill Hinman, telling him, you know what to do. But he never gave Charlie's full name. Then came Salter's cross-examination. This person Charlie that you referred to in your testimony, he said to DiCarlo, were you aware of this person Charlie's full name? Charles Manson, DiCarlo said. It was the first time the name had been uttered in the whole trial, on the last day of testimony. That was November 24. Outside the courtroom, police and district attorneys were finally making headway on the Tate-LaBianca crimes. Like Ross, Salter knew enough to suspect a link. The prosecution's sudden addition of DiCarlo only encouraged those suspicions. Salter knew that police had questioned DiCarlo about the Tate murders, and he intended to let the jury know it too. Manuel Gutierrez, an LAPD officer who'd been the first to hear DiCarlo's story, took the stand to lend the biker some credibility. Salter tried to get the information out of him. Sir, he asked, you were investigating the Tate murder case at that time, were you not? Ross objected the court sustained. Your Honor, may I be heard on this? Salter said. At the bench, out of earshot from the jury, Salter argued that the jurors should know that DiCarlo was connected to the unsolved Tate murders. I think we can prove Gutierrez was interviewing DiCarlo with regard to the Tate murder case, he said. If it was a small case, fine. But he is investigating a case in which there has been so much publicity and they are rather anxious, I imagine, to find out who did it. But the judge allowed no further questions on the topic. And that was the last anyone heard of a potential connection to the Tate murders.
Ironically, the addition of DiCarlo did nothing to help the prosecution. The jurors didn't trust him any more than Ross did. The trial ended in a hung jury. Thanks to Ross's candor, it is clear that the lack of evidence could be blamed squarely on the higher-ups in the DA's office. They needed to cover up Gunther and Whiteley's early knowledge of the Manson family as the Tate-LaBianca murderers. Warm and sticky and nice. As they tailored the Hinman trial to suit the needs of the state, Buck Compton and Vincent Bugliosi were also behind the scenes of the Tate-LaBianca case. The DA's office knew it needed a momentous conviction, a sense of justice befitting the crime of the century. And Bugliosi, who aspired to power and celebrity, saw how much he could gain from some good publicity here. His office needed to control the narrative from the start, whether they had the evidence to back it up or not. Even in clear-cut circumstances, a criminal trial is a messy, protracted affair. And once the verdict comes in, all the particularities fade from the public mind. In the 50 years since Manson and his followers were convicted, the details have become largely irrelevant. If people recall any aspect of the trial, it's usually the testimony of Linda Kasabian, the state's star witness. She served as a lookout and a driver for the family during both nights of murders. Granted immunity, Kasabian was able to describe the crimes and the inner workings of the family in nauseating detail, clinching the case against Manson. And while many observers weren't pleased that an accomplice to the murders would walk free, Kasabian took pains to appear more honorable than the others. She showed remorse. She emphasized that she hadn't participated in any of the violence. What hardly anyone remembers is that Kasabian wasn't the first one in the family to get a deal from the prosecutors. Before her was Susan Atkins, the woman who'd led the police to break the case, and who was eventually convicted along with the other killers, spending the rest of her life in prison before her death in 2009. Before Kasabian flipped, Atkins, an unrepentant killer was the foundation for the LAPD's case and for the prosecution that followed. To pursue the conviction of Manson, the prosecution first had to bring their charges before a grand jury. They relied strongly on Atkins's testimony there. It was instrumental in securing the first-degree murder indictments against Manson and five others, including herself. In short, it was her story that made Bugliosi's famous trial possible. But I found two memos indicating that Atkins was improperly obtained as a witness. Before she or any other Manson followers had been charged, prosecutors colluded with a superior court judge to have her legally appointed defense attorney replaced by a former deputy DA who would do their bidding. Her story sanctioned and tweaked by the DA's office and her planted defense attorney, was based on lies. The entire narrative put before that grand jury should be reconsidered. It started with the end of the family. About a month after the Tate-LaBianca murders that would bring them to infamy, they fled the Spahn Ranch. Manson believed the police were closing in on them. He also feared retaliation from the Black Panthers, 
having mistakenly believed, as discussed in the last chapter, that he'd murdered one, Bernard Crow, who was neither a panther nor dead. He resettled his clan deep in Death Valley, at an adjoining pair of remote barren ranches called Myers and Barker. There, they sustained themselves through petty crimes and an auto theft ring. It was this last that brought them to the attention of Inyo County law enforcement, who tracked them to their compound and captured them in raids over two nights in mid-October 1969. In Independence, California, the group of 20-some bedraggled hippies sat in the cramped county jail. LASO detectives Gunther and Whiteley drove 225 miles to the dusty desert town to seek out a possible witness in the Hinman murder. You may remember her name, Kitty Lutzinger, Bobby Beausoleil's girlfriend, the same witness the detectives had seemingly deliberately failed to track down months earlier. Lutzinger's parents had called the detectives to say that their daughter was in custody in Independence. When Gunther and Whiteley found her, she told them that Susan Atkins had boasted of torturing and finally killing Hinman with Beausoleil over two nights. The story aligned with what they'd already heard. They asked the Inyo County Sheriff to take them to Atkins herself. Atkins agreed to speak to the detectives without an attorney present. They told her that her fingerprints had been found at the Hinman crime scene and that Beausoleil had already ratted on her. Both lies, but they got her talking about the crime. Atkins admitted to having held Hinman while Beausoleil stabbed him but she claimed she never hurt him. She was booked on a first-degree murder charge and transferred to the Sybil Brand Institute for Women in downtown Los Angeles. Atkins's cellmate was a longtime con artist and call girl who went by Ronnie Howard. The two became fast friends. Almost immediately, Atkins was telling Howard and another inmate, Virginia Graham, all about her role in the Tate-LaBianca murders. She had personally stabbed Sharon Tate to death, she bragged, as Tate begged for the life of her unborn baby. After Tate died, Atkins said she'd tasted the dead actress's blood. It was warm and sticky and nice. Howard was shocked. Here was a woman casually crowing about the biggest unsolved murder in Los Angeles history. On November 17, she made a hushed call from a payphone to the Hollywood station of the LAPD, telling a detective that she knew who was responsible for the Tate-LaBianca murders. That night, the LAPD sent two detectives to interview Howard at Sybil Brand. She convinced them easily of the veracity of her claims. Fearing for her safety, detectives had her moved to an isolated unit. The next morning, more detectives interviewed her, and that same day they brought their information to the district attorney, Ivel Younger. He assigned Aaron Stovitz and Vincent Bugliosi to prosecute the case. The Tate-LaBianca murders had been solved. Strong Client Control On the evening of November 19, Bugliosi attended a hastily convened meeting at the district attorney's office. In attendance were his immediate supervisor, Assistant District Attorney Joseph Bush, Aaron Stovitz, also from the DA's office, and from the LAPD, Lieutenant Paul LePage, 
and Sergeant Mike McGann of the LaBianca and Tate investigative teams, respectively. With the consent of the DA's office, the LAPD wanted to cut a deal with Susan Atkins. She'd share what she knew about the murders in exchange for immunity. Bugliosi thought this was a grave error. Atkins, he reminded his colleagues, had described personally stabbing Sharon Tate to death and tasting her blood. She'd admitted stabbing other victims at the Tate house. She'd participated in the murder of Gary Hinman. And that was only what they'd heard so far. Who knows what else she'd done? We don't give that gal anything, he claimed to have said. But the LAPD was adamant. For months, they'd been under enormous pressure to solve the case. The press had derided them constantly for their failure. Now they could announce their success with a splashy press conference and rush the case to a grand jury. Bugliosi countered that they were getting ahead of themselves. They didn't have a case yet, only a solid lead. The group reached a compromise. Instead of total immunity, Atkins would be offered a second-degree murder plea, sparing her the death penalty while ensuring she wouldn't walk free. But as Bugliosi acknowledged in Helter Skelter, they didn't work out the precise terms of this offer. One of the most pressing concerns went unaddressed. Would Atkins have to testify at the trial before the public and Manson himself, or only for the grand jury? However Bugliosi claimed to have felt about Atkins, the district attorney's office was desperate to secure her cooperation. Without it, they weren't sure they could indict Manson and the other killers. A lot depended on her reliability and consistency. What if she changed her story, which so far they'd only heard from her cellmate? And even more was riding on her defense attorney. If he didn't like the deal, he could prove to be a major obstacle. Rather than risk that, the DA's office decided they'd do better to replace him with someone guaranteed to play by their rules, and someone who could make sure Atkins said the right thing at the right time. Atkins's attorney was Gerald Condon, a lawyer in private practice who'd been legally appointed by a judge to represent her in the Hinman murder. Normally, the court would have assigned her someone from the public defender's office, but they couldn't do that here. Beausoleil, her accomplice in the Hinman killing, was already represented by a public defender, and in such cases, the court had to avoid a potential conflict of interest. So Condon it was. Condon was appointed on November 12. Two weeks later, on November 26, he was out. What happened? In the LASO archives, I found a seven-page memo that gave me a good lead. In an entry for November 20, the day after the DA's office and the LAPD had agreed to attempt a deal with Atkins, the document notes a never-before-reported meeting between LASO officers the LAPD, and Mr. Compton and Mr. Stovitz of the DA's office. The men discussed the fact that the Atkins woman would be in court on 11-26-69 for the Superior Court arraignment, at which time it was stated that there would be a change of her counsel and Mr. Caballero would be designated as her counsel. There's no mention of Condon's or Atkins's consent to this change and it was presented as a fait accompli.
This meeting came six days before the hearing in question, and yet all parties involved were already certain of the outcome. How? A second, less ambiguous document turned up in the files of LAPD Lieutenant Paul LePage. It was a three-page summary of his investigative work on the LaBianca murders. A section on Susan Atkins's court appearances described the same November 20 meeting in more detail. It was decided that because of the gravity of the case and the importance of Atkins's information and cooperation, that her attorney be the type who had strong client control. Deputy District Attorney Fitz made several inquiries, and it was decided that Condon might not have the necessary control. So, behind Atkins's and Condon's backs, Fitz recommended Dick Caballero as an attorney who had good client control and would properly represent his client. Fitz got in touch with Judge Mario Clinko, who was overseeing the case, and arrangements were made for Caballero to be appointed as Atkins's attorney of record at her felony arraignment. This was accomplished. This was accomplished. Yes, it was. With no small contribution from Fitz, the same DA who'd inserted himself in the Beausoleil trial. According to the minutes of Atkins's November 26 arraignment, the judge assigned Caballero to the case right then and there. No mention was made of Condon's removal, or how or why it occurred. The full transcript of the hearing has vanished from the archives of the Los Angeles Superior Court. The court's spokesperson told me that a thorough search of the archive produced no results. I called Condon to ask him about his removal from the case. He confirmed that he'd been replaced against his wishes and his clients, and that Judge Klinko had never given him a reason. Whatever was going through Klinko's mind, I don't know, Condon told me. Atkins did ask that I stay on. He remembered being temporarily distressed by Klinko's action, but he never complained to the court about it. Once the news came that Atkins was involved in the Tate-LaBianca murders, his wife told him she'd leave him if he tried to represent her again. That was that. The LAPD and the district attorney's office had quietly decided that their star witness needed a certain lawyer. Whether she or her attorney wanted it or not, they accomplished it. Improper and unethical. In addition to his much vaunted client control, the replacement lawyer, Richard Caballero, had another quality that endeared him to the DA's office. He'd worked there himself for eight years. As a prosecutor, Caballero had won five death penalty convictions, and he was still close with his former colleagues. Bugliosi, Compton, and the others could trust him. Now all he had to do was get Atkins to take the deal. She didn't have to stay under his thumb forever just long enough to make it through the grand jury and bring on the indictments they needed. We'll never know exactly what Caballero promised Atkins, or how he laid out the terms of the deal. Unlike most agreements of this nature, hers was never formalized in writing, never marked by her signature. Whatever he said, it was enough to satisfy the higher-ups at the LAPD and the DA's office. On December 1, they were finally ready to tell the public, They'd solved the case of the century. 
That was the day Police Chief Edward Davis got his big press conference. Sturdy podium, cameras rolling, hundreds of stunned and eager reporters jostling for space. Reading from prepared remarks, Davis doled out the details sparingly. He didn't even provide Manson's name, announcing that legal restrictions prohibit the revelation of further information at this time. Pressed for more information about the suspects, he said only that they were part of a roving band of hippies that called itself the family and were led by a man they called Jesus. Davis had to be judicious, or at least appear to be. A thorough account of the murders could taint the jury pool. The next day, however, an endless trough of specifics came flooding out, provided by two unassailable on-the-record sources, Atkins's new attorney, Richard Caballero, and his law partner, Paul Caruso. Acting as no less than a bullhorn for the DA's office, Caballero and Caruso, the latter a well-known mob lawyer and a longtime friend of Los Angeles DA Evel Younger, outlined what would become, in essence, the prosecution's case for murder against the Manson family. Standing on the steps of the Santa Monica courthouse, Caballero told gathered reporters that Atkins was a follower of Charles Manson and that she'd been at the scene of the Tate slayings, the Hinman murder, and the killings of the LaBiancas. Atkins was under Manson's hypnotic spell, but she had nothing to do with the murders. Seemingly his only effort at exonerating her amid the onslaught of grim particulars. He added that Manson called himself both God and the devil, and that the police had told him that Atkins and the others were directed by Manson to go to both the Hinman house and the Tate house. Atkins would tell her complete story to the grand jury later that week. In Helter Skelter, Bugliosi claimed that he'd come across Caballero's comments in the evening paper, and that was the only way his office learned that Atkins had accepted their deal. He never even tried to explain why it wasn't in writing, or why Caballero wouldn't have alerted him more formally. Over the next few days, Caballero and Caruso kept talking to the press. And talking. And talking. In case there was lingering ambiguity, they described Manson's dictatorial methods. They offered a timeline of events for the nights of the murders, including the order of the deaths. They tossed in sordid details, describing the killer's dress code, and noting that after killing the LaBiancas, they'd help themselves to a snack from the icebox. It was a four-day fusillade of specificity. Finally, on December 5, the president of the Los Angeles County Bar had had enough. Bar chief scores Atkins' attorney over Tate comments, read the Santa Monica Evening Outlook's front page, quoting him as he accused Caballero and Caruso of entirely improper and unethical conduct by revealing vital facts about the Sharon Tate murder case from the viewpoint of Miss Atkins. But the scrutiny didn't last. Amid the swell of coverage on the murders, no one seemed to mind the lawyers leaking. In a passing remark to the Los Angeles Times on the day before Atkins's grand jury testimony, Caballero more or less admitted that he wasn't acting in his client's best interest, saying he was gambling that her voluntary testimony might save her from the gas chamber. Gambling and might being the operative words. Bugliosi and his team had essentially arranged for the defense lawyers to taint the jury on the prosecution's behalf. 
everyone in Los Angeles was suddenly an expert on the Manson family. Meanwhile, on December 4, as they continued their press tour, Caballero and Caruso met with the DAs to finalize their deal. Bugliosi described it as excellent. It was, in fact, non-existent. As all the parties present would later admit during the death penalty phase of the trial, nothing was ever formalized or signed. The next day, Atkins testified before the grand jury, as promised. The papers reported that Manson, Atkins, Linda Kasabian, Patricia Krenwinkel, Leslie Van Houten, and Tex Watson had been indicted on seven counts of murder after only 20 minutes of deliberation. Soon after, Caballero and Caruso walked away from the case, richer and more famous, with no apparent regrets. A reporter asked Bugliosi if he would have gotten the indictments without Atkins's cooperation. He answered, do the French drink wine? The shape-shifting deal. When Bugliosi made his deal with Caballero, he knew full well that Atkins was an unstable witness and a murderer. He needed her to get indictments for the other members of the family, but he also needed a pretext to back away from her after she'd served her purpose. It wouldn't look good if he could only score convictions by easing up on one of the killers. His reversal would be a lot easier since the deal wasn't on paper, but even so, he'd have to provide some explanation if and when the prosecution parted ways with her. Before Bugliosi put Atkins in front of the grand jury, he approved an odd request from her lawyers to have her removed from jail and brought to their offices in Beverly Hills for a taped interview. In Helter Skelter, calling the arrangement unusual but not unprecedented, Bugliosi claimed that his team went along with it because they thought Atkins would speak more freely away from her fellow inmates. But it also set up a chain of events that allowed the prosecutor to rid himself of her. In the comfort of Caballero's office, Atkins spoke on tape for two and a half hours about her role in the murders. Listening the next day, Bugliosi noticed that she'd changed her story. At first, she'd told her cellmates that she'd stabbed Sharon Tate. Now she claimed that she couldn't bring herself to do it, and instead held Tate by the arms while Watson stabbed her. That's what she told the grand jury, too, that she didn't kill Sharon Tate. But the discrepancy wasn't a problem for Bugliosi, as long as he got his indictments. Throughout Helter Skelter, Bugliosi inadvertently proved how malleable the Atkins deal was, describing it in different terms at different times. Early in the narrative, he said that all she had to do was testify truthfully to the grand jury and cooperate with authorities. She'd never have to testify against her co-defendants at the actual trial. In exchange, the prosecution would consider not asking for the death penalty. But after the grand jury, the deal changed. Suddenly, she did have to testify against the others. Without her, we still didn't have a case, Bugliosi wrote. Later still, he said that the prosecution was stuck with Atkins on the stand because of the deal, bemoaning the fact that he'd made an agreement with a killer. I tend to think this is all rhetorical hand-wringing, a way of upping the stakes in his book when really he knew that Atkins was never going to take the stand. 
Caballero, in fact, was doing everything in his power to lead his client away from testifying. He allowed Atkins to take visits from her former friends in the family, who came bearing messages from Manson. The lawyer knew full well that given enough exposure to her former lifestyle, Atkins was likely to return to Manson's fold and refute her grand jury testimony. It worked. One day, she called Caballero and told him that she refused to testify at the trial. It was her first step toward formally undoing everything, except the indictments, which couldn't be undone. Bugliosi fretted that he'd lost his star witness, but inwardly, he must have been pleased. Although he omitted it from his book, he was already in negotiations with the attorney of Linda Kasabian, a far more sympathetic witness, to cut a deal and take Atkins's place at the trial. Of course, had Atkins's attorney been independently appointed, they would have reminded the prosecution of the terms of her deal, which precluded her testimony at the trial. Now Bugliosi could claim that she'd violated the deal and would lose her security against the death penalty. Atkins kept unraveling. On March 5, 1970, in the attorney's room at the Central County Jail, Caballero presided over an hour-long reunion between his client and Manson. He described it as joyous, adding that Atkins and Manson both burst into laughter when their eyes met for the first time in five months. The meeting was only possible because Judge William Keene had granted Manson the right to represent himself an allowance that shocked the courtroom. As his own attorney, Manson was entitled to meet with his jailed co-defendants on the pretext of interviewing them as possible witnesses in the case against him. Among his first requested interviews was the woman responsible for his indictment, Susan Atkins. After their meeting, a reporter asked Atkins if Manson had ordered her to change the story she related to the grand jury. Atkins responded just as Caballero and the prosecution always knew she would. Charlie doesn't give orders. Charlie doesn't command. Contradicting the thrust of her grand jury testimony, of course. The day after the meeting, Atkins fired Caballero and Caruso. She announced that she was recanting her grand jury testimony and formally declined to testify for the state. That same day, Judge Keene revoked Manson's right to represent himself, arguing that he had filed too many outlandish and nonsensical motions. Caballero later testified that after he was fired, he didn't check in with the prosecution about the status of Atkins's deal. But in an interview with the Hollywood Citizen News several weeks after his firing, he made the status of the deal crystal clear. It didn't exist. Susan Atkins's former attorney, Richard Caballero, said that no deal had been made which caused her to testify before the grand jury, the paper reported. The excellent deal that Bugliosi had written of was no deal at all. Its non-existence has gone unnoticed all these years. Who cares about the legal vagaries of a confessed killer like Susan Atkins? But without this hoax of a deal, and the lawyer swap that enabled it, Manson and his followers may never have been indicted. And the reigning narrative of Manson as an all-controlling cult leader may never have come out. Gary Fleischman, Linda Kasabian's attorney, he now goes by Gary Fields, 
told me that he was convinced the DA was instrumental in getting Dick Caballero appointed, and that Bugliosi never had any intention of keeping his deal with Atkins. They used her to get an indictment, he said, and then they dumped her because they couldn't use her at trial because she was dirty. The whole thing smelled to high heaven, he continued. Caballero and Caruso got away with fucking murder. They sold her down the river. It was a stunning assessment from Fields. No one had benefited more from Caballero and Caruso's dirty dealings than his client. Ice cream for Atkins. Caballero had another coup during his tenure as Atkins's lawyer. He made sure that her story was heard around the world in all its gory, self-incriminating detail. A few days before Atkins's grand jury testimony, her attorneys met with a self-described Hollywood journalist and communicator named Lawrence Schiller to negotiate the publication of her first-hand account of the murders. Essentially, the text would be an edited transcription of the recording she'd made in Caballero's office, with her byline slapped on it. Caballero and Caruso later claimed that they intended for the story to appear only overseas, far from the eyes of any potential jurors in Los Angeles. But such was not the case. On Sunday, December 14, Atkins's byline landed on the front page of the Los Angeles Times. Her piece ran to 6,500 words, spilling across three full pages. The piece was an immediate sensation, far and away the most robust account of the Manson murders available to the public. Readers in Los Angeles, and within 24 hours in nearly every place on the planet with a printing press, now had all the lurid details, including those that had been kept from the public by both the prosecution and the other killer's defense attorneys. The piece spiked a vulgar account of the bloodshed with hints of Atkins's naive girlishness. My lawyer is coming soon, it ended, and he's bringing me a dish of vanilla ice cream. Vanilla ice cream really blows my mind. As Rolling Stone put it later, any doubts about Manson's power to cloud men's minds were buried that morning between Dick Tracy and one of the world's great real estate sections. And that, it seemed, was the real purpose of the piece. To eliminate any doubts about Manson the public might have had. In just the first column of the article, Atkins used the word instructed five times in reference to Manson's role in the killings. Everything she and the family did was on Manson's orders, she said. He was a criminal mastermind, a cult leader, a conspiring lunatic. The task of assembling an unbiased jury was suddenly a lot harder. A spokesperson for the Southern California branch of the American Civil Liberties Union told Newsweek, the interview makes it all but impossible for the defendants to get a fair trial in Los Angeles. Bugliosi, craving convictions, and the deluge of publicity from a high-profile trial was presumably unbothered by this. But Caballero should have been bothered. Even though this piece was, in effect, a continuation of the many detailed press conferences he'd given, he went through the motions of outrage. Claiming to be shocked and surprised, he told the press that Schiller had double-crossed him, breaking a promise that the story wouldn't appear in the United States. 
Although Caballero threatened lawsuits, they never materialized. Nor did Caballero make any effort to halt the dissemination of the story, which continued apace. One week later, Schiller released an expanded version in a quickie paperback called The Killing of Sharon Tate, exclusive story by Susan Atkins, confessed participant in the murder. In the acknowledgments, he thanked several attorneys involved in this case and two journalists, writing, Without their help, this book could not have been produced. Bugliosi maintained that his office had no idea the story was coming until that fateful issue of the Times landed on his doorstep. He hadn't learned a thing about the sale of Atkins's story, he claimed in Helter Skelter, until the death penalty phase of the trial. At that point, since Atkins was eligible for the death penalty, her third new attorney, Day Shin, made an attempt to save her life by arguing that Caballero had misrepresented her. He called on everyone involved in the publication of her story to explain themselves. Reading the transcript, I learned that the DA's office not only was aware of the planned publication, but may have facilitated it. And, of course, Helter Skelter left all of this out. The key to the scheme was Lawrence Schiller, the so-called communicator who'd brokered the publication deal. This wasn't Schiller's first high-profile article. Among other pieces, he'd arranged to publish the deathbed confession of Lee Harvey Oswald's murderer, Jack Ruby, nude photos of Marilyn Monroe, and photos of the comedian Lenny Bruce lying dead on his bathroom floor. He finished the Atkins deal on December 8, when the contract was signed, just in the nick of time. Two days later, Judge Keene issued a gag order, making it illegal for anyone involved to talk to the press. That should have brought a decisive end to the publication. But in violation of the gag order, Caballero drove Jerry Cohen, a Los Angeles Times reporter and a friend of Schiller, to interview his client in jail. Cohen had been tapped to ghostwrite the piece. His main source was the taped account that Atkins had made in Caballero's office. But apparently he needed more material, and the lawyer was happy to accommodate him. In the car that evening, besides Caballero and Cohen, were Schiller and a stenographer, Carmela Ambrosini. At the jail, Cohen and Ambrosini went inside to interview Atkins. The purpose of the visit, as recorded in the visitor's log at Civil Brand, was to discuss a future psychiatric evaluation. Remember, Caballero had earlier claimed that Atkins could speak safely only at his Beverly Hills offices. Now a journalist and a stenographer were talking with her right there in jail. They spoke for about an hour. When they got back in the car, Caballero made an unusual demand of Ambrosini. He told the stenographer to pull out a small section of the tape from her machine, maybe about three minutes worth, and give it to him. Caballero ripped the tape into tiny pieces, Ambrosini later testified, and then threw them on the floor of the car. Then he picked them up from the floor and put them into his pocket. On the stand, Caballero finally admitted that the taped section contained comments from Atkins suggesting that she'd lied to the grand jury at his direction. She'd said something to the effect of, Okay, I played your game, I testified, 
I said what you wanted me to say. I don't want to do it anymore. At which point he told her to stop talking. Under more persistent questioning, Caballero conceded that Atkins used the word lie and appeared to be repudiating her grand jury testimony. It was the closest thing to an admission that Caballero had manipulated Atkins, that her testimony and all the indictments that stemmed from it were unreliable. But again, because Atkins was a confessed murderer, this hardly seemed remarkable to the media. And, of course, the story of how Caballero and Caruso became Atkins's attorney was locked in police vaults until I found it. Something very smelly. Jerry Cohen was a ghostwriter in the purest sense of the word. No one was supposed to know that he'd finessed Atkins's words, let alone that he'd interviewed her in jail. To that end, Lawrence Schiller had presented himself unambiguously as Atkins's interlocutor. I will be the first and the last newsman with whom Susan Atkins can speak freely until her fate is decided, he wrote in the paperback version of the Atkins story. In fact, Schiller had been sitting outside in the car while Cohen talked to Atkins in jail. After that interview, Cohen ripped through his ghostwriting in two days at Schiller's house. Schiller made three carbon copies of the finished piece, one for Caballero, one for a German editor who'd bought the translation rights, and one to be flown overseas to the London News of the World, which had paid $40,000 for exclusive English rights. Or so said Bugliosi, who wrote in Helter Skelter, how the Los Angeles Times obtained the story remains unknown. Bugliosi did not write that Cohen, a reporter for the Times, was also a friend and collaborator of his. That relationship came out only when Bugliosi himself appeared as a witness during the trial's penalty phase. Under cross-examination, he admitted that he'd known Cohen for the last two or three years. As he later confirmed to me, he was collaborating with Cohen on a book of his own. Not helter-skelter, but Till Death Do Us Part, another true crime chronicle. It eventually appeared in 1978 with another co-author. The two men had begun work on the book before Sharon Tate was even murdered. Bugliosi set it aside when he realized that the Manson murders would be the more sensational story. The defense alleged that Bugliosi had helped broker the publication of Atkins's story. They never proved it, in part because Jerry Cohen had dodged subpoena servers and never testified. But certainly it was a point in their favor that Bugliosi had omitted his working relationship with the reporter who ghost-wrote the story, and that said reporter worked for the same newspaper where the story eventually appeared. As for Schiller... In his turn on the stand, he did finally admit that he never met Susan Atkins. But afterward, he claimed in interviews with Vanity Fair, Playboy, and the New York Times, and even his Pulitzer Prize-winning collaboration with Norman Mailer, the Executioner song, that he'd interviewed Atkins in her cell. Cohen's ghostwriting would have remained a secret if not for Pete Miller, an investigative reporter for Los Angeles's KTTV. In January 1970, as preliminary hearings continued in the Manson case, he decided to look into the Atkins sale. 
He wanted to see if Lawrence Schiller had actually interviewed Atkins in her jail cell, as he'd claimed he had. Miller checked the jail's visitor's log and saw that Schiller had never been in to see Atkins. But he did notice a name he recognized, Jerry Cohen's, appearing alongside Caballero's. On the phone, Caballero admitted that he'd brought Cohen in case he wanted to prepare a psychiatric defense for Atkins. Miller pointed out that Cohen was a reporter, not a psychiatrist, and Caballero abruptly ended the conversation. Miller tried to bring this to light, but he couldn't get very far. After his initial reports aired in January 1970, Bugliosi requested a meeting with him. The two sat down at KTTV's headquarters, along with Caballero, a second DA, Miller's bosses, and attorneys for the station. This meeting came up during the penalty phase of the trial, when the defense called Miller to testify. He tried to say what they'd discussed and why no more stories aired after his first one, but Bugliosi objected every step of the way. All he could get out was that they talked about some of the reports I had been doing concerning Susan Atkins. As a result of this meeting, was something done regarding your further broadcasts of this case? Asked Dacian, Atkins's attorney. Objection, cried Bugliosi. Irrelevant. Sustained, responded the court. Shin tried again later. As a result of this meeting, did you further terminate? Objection, Bugliosi said again. Irrelevant. Will you complete the question? The judge asked Shin. As a result of this meeting, did you further terminate the broadcasts concerning this case? Objection. Irrelevant. Sustained. Out of earshot of the jury, Bugliosi told the judge, Miller's testimony has nothing to do with death as opposed to life. It is my contention that the defense attorneys are going to use this death penalty hearing as a forum to sling dirt at various people, including, of course, him. The judge said he wouldn't allow any mention of what happened at the meeting. It constituted hearsay. Thus, the prosecutor kept much of Miller's investigation under wraps, most of the media covering the trial never even mentioned the Miller appearance. The Los Angeles Times omitted him entirely, focusing instead, as they always had, on the litany of bizarre behavior from the defendants and their supporters outside the courthouse. Under oath, both Bugliosi and his co-prosecutor, Aaron Stovitz, denied that they knew about the sale of Atkins's story before it was published. Maybe inadvertently, Richard Caballero impeached their testimony. Under questioning by the defense's Irving Kanarek, Caballero said, I did state to someone at the district attorney's office, I believe it was Mr. Stovitz, I may be wrong, that I had entered into the arrangement for the sale of the story, and they were upset. Who is they? Kanarek asked. I believe Mr. Stovitz was there, and I am almost positive someone else was there, but I cannot recall who. Kanarek did his best to bring out the implication that this someone else was Bugliosi. Caballero, in a response worthy of the CIA, neither confirmed nor denied it. After the Atkins story came out, Lawrence Schiller spoke to Newsweek which asked how he'd been able to penetrate the security surrounding the state's star witness, risking a mistrial by publishing her story. 
He answered with a grin. Let's say this. The prosecution didn't put up any obstacles. I was more than ready to believe him on that count. But what about the judge, William Keene? Why didn't he put up any obstacles? The worldwide publication of Atkins's story was about as blatant a violation of his gag order as one can imagine. But he never held Caballero and Caruso in contempt. In a story for the Los Angeles Free Press, Ed Sanders, who would go on to write The Family, argued that Judge Keene must have known in advance about the publication, letting it slide because he, like Bugliosi, wanted the publicity from the case. Keene was considering a run for district attorney. After Atkins's story was published, Linda Kasabian's attorney, Gary Fields, filed a motion to dismiss the case because of unfair pretrial publicity. Judge Keene denied the motion, despite abundant evidence of publicity. That's where the story is, Fields told me 30 years later. Something very smelly there. A strange little guy. Richard Caballero refused to discuss the case with me. The answer is no thank you, he said on the phone. I asked him why not. The answer is no thank you, he said. I tried one more time, saying I wanted to discuss the sale of the Atkins story. The answer is no thank you, he shouted, hanging up the phone. Lawrence Schiller wouldn't talk to me either, and Jerry Cohen had died by his own hand in 1993. Looking into those two men, I found that throughout the 60s, their journalism had often gotten them mixed up in furtive arrangements. In 67, Schiller had published the first book to attack the conspiracy theorists around John F. Kennedy's assassination, staunchly supporting the official explanation for JFK's death. That same year, foreshadowing his feat at Sybil Brand, Schiller wormed his way into the Dallas hospital room of Jack Ruby who'd killed Kennedy's assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald. The reporter emerged with the only recording ever made of Ruby's confessing to the murder. Schiller released it on vinyl that year. Notably, he'd taped Ruby saying that he hadn't killed Oswald as part of a conspiracy, thus shoring up the government's official line. During a congressional investigation of the CIA's illegal domestic operations, the agency admitted that it had more than 250 assets in the American media in the 1960s. Their identities were never revealed. Mark Lane, who'd written the first book questioning the findings of the Warren Commission, the investigative committee appointed by President Lyndon Johnson, which concluded that Kennedy was killed by a lone assassin, believed Schiller was one of those assets. And Jerry Cohen, too. Lane believed they'd been tasked with disrupting investigations of the Kennedy assassination. In testimony before Congress, Lane charged that the CIA had paid Cohen to smear him in the press. I could never prove that, but I did find a trove of documents in the National Archives showing that Schiller had been acting as an informant for the FBI in 1967 and 1968 sharing confidential information with the Bureau about Mark Lane's sources. His work as an informant continued under the cloak of his reporting for Life magazine, which was later named in a 1977 Rolling Stone story as one of the publications that provided CIA employees with cover. 
Schiller tracked down authorities who were investigating potential malfeasance in the Kennedy assassination, using his press credentials to obtain interviews and then sharing his findings with the FBI. He'd written to J. Edgar Hoover to say that he was in possession of the names and whereabouts of the confidential informant whom Mr. Mark Lane refused to identify in his testimony to the Warren Commission. Schiller dug up information about officials looking into the CIA's involvement in the Kennedy assassination. According to memos, the FBI eagerly awaited Schiller's information. Others had made similar claims about Cohen and Schiller. Pete Noyes, a TV investigative reporter who'd written a book on the assassinations of President Kennedy and his brother Robert, said that Cohen, a friend, had pressured him to abandon the project. If Noyes dropped the publication of the book, Cohen promised him a plum job at the Los Angeles Times. Noyes declined the offer. But he was disturbed by how much Cohen knew about his unpublished work. A few weeks later, he was fired from his job at CBS News. Cohen was a strange little guy, Noyes told me. He wondered why his one-time friend tried to quash his book and he suspected that Cohen had played a role in his firing, too. Although he could never prove it, Noyes was fairly certain that Cohen was a CIA asset. Coda. What did Atkins really say? Susan Atkins's testimony was the blueprint for the official narrative of the murders. But if it was shaped to serve the prosecution, how much of it should we believe? If there's an unvarnished account, a sense of what Atkins said about the crimes before she came under the control of her attorneys and the DA's office, it's the one she shared with her cellmate, Ronnie Howard. We'll never get to hear that account verbatim. But there's something that comes close. In the files of LAPD Lieutenant Paula Page, I found notes from Detective's November 18, 1969 interview with Howard. They contained several inconsistencies with what would become Atkins's official story. And by the time Howard was re-interviewed seven days later, after Caballero's insertion in the case, she changed what she said. And all of these discrepancies were gone. To my knowledge, they've never been reported. First, Atkins told Howard that Sharon Tate died in her bedroom on the bed. Later, she was said to have died in the living room. Second, she said the killers were tripping on LSD the night of the Tate murders. If that were true, the defense could have argued that they had diminished capacity, thus sparing them the gas chamber. Bugliosi, wanting to eliminate that possibility, made Linda Kasabian testify on multiple occasions that no one took any drugs on the nights of the murders. In a 2009 documentary, Kasabian contradicted her testimony, saying that all the killers had taken speed on the night of the Tate murders. Third, Atkins said that they killed the LaBianca couple because of something to do with blackmail, although she couldn't elaborate. She said she'd participated in those murders, too. She was the one who left the kitchen fork protruding from Lino LaBianca's belly, in the official narrative, Atkins was in the car that brought the killers to the LaBiancas, but she never went inside the house. What's just as remarkable is everything that Howard didn't mention in that first interview.
She said nothing about helter-skelter, Manson's race war, except to note that those words were left in blood on the LaBianca refrigerator. She made no mention, in other words, of a racist motive, black people, holes in the desert, Armageddon, or the Beatles, all of which became central to Bugliosi's prosecution. And, as you might expect by now, she made no mention of Manson's instructing anyone to go anywhere or kill anyone, all of which would be repeated incessantly in Atkins's later accounts. As for Atkins's most heinous act, the stabbing of Sharon Tate as she begged for the life of her baby, Howard was much more equivocal about it than we've been led to believe. She said that Atkins didn't admit she did the stabbing on the Tate deal. And yet, the next time Howard talked, after Caballero had arrived, she said without reservation that Atkins had boasted about stabbing Tate in nauseating detail. Think of all the unanswered questions that have swirled around the Manson case for 50 years now. Just a few. Why did the killers target strangers for murder? Why would previously nonviolent kids, except for Atkins, none of them had a criminal record, kill for Manson on command and with such abandon and lack of remorse? And if Manson hoped to ignite a world-ending race war, why didn't he order more killings, since the two nights of murder didn't trigger that war? Bugliosi made a fortune and achieved worldwide fame from his prosecution of the Manson family and Helter Skelter. Over the years, many people in law enforcement have told me that they never believed the Helter Skelter motive. Their theories were always more mundane. They would have made thinner gruel for Bugliosi's book. Eventually, all the killers settled on a story similar to the one that Atkins told after her attorney swap. And all of them have sought parole releases based on that story's thesis. That they were not responsible for their actions because they were under Manson's control. Many of the psychiatrists who testified said that the defendants' minds had been so decimated by LSD that they likely had no way of discerning real memories from false ones. They may not even have known if they were at either house on the nights of the killings, let alone whether they participated in the murders. The only person who never endorsed Atkins's final story and the helter-skelter motive along with it was Manson. After his conviction, he said little about the crimes, except that he didn't know what his children were going to do before they did it, and that he had no explanation for why they'd done it. Curiously, Bugliosi admitted in one of his last interviews that he was pretty certain Manson never believed in helter-skelter. I think everyone who participated in the murders bought the helter-skelter theory hook, line, and sinker, he told Rolling Stone. But did Manson himself believe in all this ridiculous, preposterous stuff about all of them living in a bottomless pit in the desert while a worldwide war went on outside? I think, without knowing, that he did not. Unfortunately, the reporter didn't follow up with the obvious rejoinder. If the murders weren't committed to incite a race war, what was the reason? As I've mentioned before, there was a persistent rumor among followers of the case, including the detectives who'd investigated it, that Manson had visited the Tate House after the murders, 
arriving with some unknown companion to restage the crime scene. If it's true that Susan Atkins's story was the product of careful sculpting by the DA's office, the prospect of Manson's visitation isn't nearly as far-fetched as it would be otherwise. One of the more perplexing clues to that end is a pair of eyeglasses recovered from Tate's living room after the murders. They didn't belong to any of the victims. They didn't belong to any of the murderers. They didn't seem to belong to anyone, period. Detectives never explained them to anyone's satisfaction. In a 1986 book called Manson in His Own Words, ostensibly co-written by Manson and an ex-con named Newell Emmons, Manson mentioned these glasses, saying he went to the Cielo house with an unnamed conspirator and took elaborate measures to rearrange the crime scene. My partner had an old pair of eyeglasses, which we often used as a magnifying glass or a device to start a fire when matches weren't available, he wrote. We carefully wiped the glasses free of prints and dropped them on the floor, so that when discovered, they would be a misleading clue for the police. To be clear, Manson, in his own words, is a far from unimpeachable source. Emmons wrote the book years after a series of prison interviews with Manson but he wasn't allowed to record these or take notes at the time. Manson himself vaguely disavowed the book, although not before appearing with Emmons in several televised interviews to promote it. I was inclined to take a kinder view toward it when I found, in the LASO files, a kite, or prison note, from Manson to Linda Kasabian. His coded language is hard to decipher, but he may have been admitting that he left the glasses at the Cielo house after the murders. The note seems to have been delivered in an effort to persuade Kasabian not to make a deal with the prosecution. So what if I did make you do it? I don't care if you're a snitch. You've been a lying bitch. I did what I did because I felt it was to be done, and I even put the eyeglasses to where I could show you all are blind and give them shorty. Each time you skew down, you think of Sharon Tate. And no, that's you if I can't get to my Nancy's love. The next lines had been underlined by police. Tell Gold to hold the boneyard and no bones outside the yard. While it's always difficult to decode anything Manson said or wrote, this note isn't as impenetrable as others. Gold was Manson's nickname for one of his family favorites, Nancy Pittman whom he had referred to as Nancy a few lines earlier. In early 1970, Pittman paid frequent visits to all the defendants in jail, doing Manson's bidding. She told Linda Kasabian not to turn state's evidence. She told Atkins to stop cooperating with the prosecution. Shorty refers to Shorty Shea, the Spawn Ranch caretaker whom the family had killed and buried in a remote part of the property. As mentioned earlier, his remains weren't recovered until 1977. To hazard a guess, Manson was warning Kasabian not to flip and instructing her to tell Gold, when next she visited, that Shorty Shea's bones were not to be removed from the boneyard at the Spawn Ranch where he was buried. Manson even may have been referring to other victims' buried remains at the ranch, it's long been suspected that more victims of the family are buried somewhere. While the implications of the note are sensational, 
What's more important to me is Manson's apparent admission that he returned to the Tate house after the murders and planted the glasses. I expected investigators to dismiss the possibility of Manson's meddling at the scene. But some were open to it. Late in my reporting, I spoke with Danny Bowser, a retired lieutenant from the LAPD homicide squad who'd never given an interview about Manson. In 1965, Bowser had been appointed the first commander of the LAPD's new Special Investigations Section, SIS, an elite high-tech unit that served as professional witnesses by running court surveillance on known criminals. Its goal was to gather such a preponderance of evidence that convictions were all but guaranteed and plea bargains all but impossible. And the SIS was a furtive bunch. For a decade, the LAPD never even publicly acknowledged its existence. We weren't even connected to a division, Bowser told the Los Angeles Times in 1988. They carried us on the roster at different places, different times. That was the only time Bowser ever commented about the SIS. A second piece reported that SIS was called the Death Squad within the LAPD because its members had killed 34 suspects since 1965. The secretive 20-man unit had a controversial policy. It refused to intervene to stop crimes, even those in which people's lives were at stake. The Times investigation documented numerous instances in which well-armed teams of SIS detectives stood by watching as victims were threatened with death and sometimes physically harmed by criminals who could have been arrested beforehand. The later piece in the Times reported that, even within the LAPD, SIS officers are known as a fearsome and mysterious bunch. Some of their colleagues repeat unsubstantiated and vigorously denied rumors of SIS officers conspiring to shoot suspects and celebrating gunfights with kill parties. I'd heard from other detectives that after Sharon Tate's murder, the LAPD assigned Bowser to serve as Roman Polanski's bodyguard. Why would such an elite officer get such a low-level task? Polanski confirmed the assignment in his 1984 autobiography, Roman by Polanski, writing that Bowser had been the first detective to interview him and had shadowed his every move. He added somewhat cryptically that Bowser wasn't, strictly speaking, on the investigative side of the case. One of his responsibilities was to keep in touch with me. Why, then, was his name never mentioned in Helter Skelter or at the trial? I had trouble finding a way to talk to Bowser. Finally, in 2008, I settled on a time-honored repertorial tactic. I showed up at his doorstep unannounced. He lived way out in Inyo County, five hours from L.A., at the end of a quiet suburban street. Bowser refused to let me in, saying he wouldn't talk to me. Despite his advanced age, he cut an imposing figure, He had a glass eye, and I later learned that his real eye had been shot out. But I kept him standing in his doorway by blurting out questions about the Tate crime scene, hoping to convince him that I'd done my homework. It worked. Kind of. Bowser would shut the door on me, only to open it again to say more. Whenever he seemed to have said his piece, he'd find something else to add. For the next 30 minutes, 
as the sprinklers chirped next door and a TV blared from inside his house. He told me things that he insisted he'd never shared outside the SIS. Most of our stilted conversation was about the homicide investigation report for the Tate case, a document that was pretty much the basis of the prosecution's physical evidence. Bowser said it was littered with inaccuracies. The detectives in the homicide unit, he claimed, left things behind, things they missed. An awful lot of evidence didn't get processed. At least two key pieces of physical evidence weren't, in fact, discovered at the crime scene the morning of the murders, although more than a dozen police officers and forensic investigators had testified that they had been. One was that mysterious pair of eyeglasses. Bowser told me he'd found those himself, five days after the murders. That contradicted the homicide report, which said the glasses had been located and taken into custody on August 9, 1969. Gently, I suggested he might be mistaken, that the homicide report suggested otherwise. What, you think that's the Bible? He snorted. You believe the stuff you read in there? He made sure I didn't jump to the conclusion that he or any of the SIS agents working under him had done anything improper. He said that his guys didn't write reports nor did they report to anyone. Nevertheless, if what he said was true, then critical elements of the prosecution's presentation of the crime scene were inaccurate. Included, just for starters, would be the means of entry into the house, the way the victims were bound, and by whom. Everything evil over there kind of connects, he added. If he was accurate, then all those cops, his colleagues at the LAPD, had lied under oath, I reminded him. Did you see any of my guys on the stand, he asked. And he added that I wouldn't find any of his guys named in the police reports either. He was right. Toward the end, Bowser toyed with giving me a proper interview. I was going to give you my number, he said, before shutting the door again, to protect you from stumbling over your dick. But I changed my mind. I waited a good ten minutes, but the door remained closed this time, and I finally left. Two years later, in 2010, he died. As I drove away, my mind was awash with possibilities. I'd always wondered about the crime scene discrepancies. I wondered if Bowser, just by alleging that the crime scene had been presented incorrectly or possibly even staged, was pointing to other reasons for the murders, or other people, perhaps, involved in covering up what had really happened. I had to think of Reeve Whitson and his claim of having gone to the crime scene after the murders but before the police had arrived. All of this is compelling evidence of a different scenario for the crimes. But I'll be the first to admit that it proves nothing for certain. I do believe it's possible that there was another reason for the Tate-LaBianca murders, and I do believe the crime scene suggests that the sequence of events as we know it is wrong. But our best chance to learn the truth vanished in November 1969, when the DA's office put Susan Atkins's testimony on lockdown. The question remaining was, why? 9. 
Manson's get out of jail free card. No more extensions. Good reporting takes time, vast and often unreasonable amounts of time. Behind every solid lead, quotable interview, and bombshell document, I put in weeks of scut work that led to dozens of dead ends. My Freedom of Information Act requests alone would stretch on for months as I quibbled with bureaucrats over redactions and minutia. Since my three-month assignment from Premier had long since evolved into a years-long project, I'd accepted that the Manson case was something akin to a calling, like it or not. Even in the longueurs between my major breakthroughs, I worked diligently with the confidence, and sometimes the hubris, that comes with the hunch that you're onto something big. That confidence would have been nothing if my editors at Premier didn't share it. The camaraderie and support they offered was critical, but more basically than that, they were keeping me alive. For almost a year and a half, through one deadline extension after another, they paid me a generous monthly stipend to keep reporting, on top of the standard fee from my original contract. Even then, I knew that these paychecks were a tremendous act of faith, and I didn't take them lightly. I wanted to deliver a news-making piece, unlike the usual stuff printed in entertainment magazines, and I thought I could do it. I just needed time. But there were limits to Premier's largesse. In November 2000, Jim Meigs, the editor-in-chief, who'd sat on the floor of my apartment examining documents with me, was fired. I heard a rumor, which I could never confirm, that the handsome monthly payments he'd authorized for me were part of the problem. Whatever the case, Premier's new regime got down to brass tacks right away. In total, including expenses, they'd paid me a king's ransom at that point, and now they demanded the goods. Immediately. Looking back, maybe I was too full of pride. I still can't decide if what I did next was best for me in the long run, but I did it. I walked away from Premier. I thought I had a historic story, and to publish it in that condition, with loose ends and so much research left to be done, would have been giving too much away. The minute I let it go, I thought the Los Angeles Times or the Washington Post would put six reporters on the story to finish what I couldn't. If they got the big scoop that had eluded me, the story of what really happened, as opposed to the millions of tiny holes in what was supposed to have happened, all the glory would be theirs, and I would be only a footnote. A writer friend had referred me to her literary agent, who took me on, convinced that I had an important book on my hands. If I could write up a proposal and sell it to a publisher, he said, I'd get the time and the money I needed to put my reporting to bed. He disentangled me from my obligation to Premier, and I started right away. It took more than a year to write the first draft of the proposal. My friends, many of whom were writers, could never understand why it was taking so long. Why not just sit down and crank the thing out? I was constantly on the defensive with them, looking for justifications. The problem, of course, was that I was still reporting, because that's what I always did. I never stopped. Without the backing of an institution like Premier, 
my mindset started to change. It was expanding. I found myself looking into Manson's year in San Francisco. He was there for the Summer of Love in 1967. It was where he'd formed the family. I was flummoxed by the authority figures who'd surrounded Manson at this time. His parole officer and the locally renowned physician who ran the clinic where he and his followers received free health care. Neither of them had spoken much to the press, and neither had testified at the trial, despite the fact that each man had seen Manson almost daily in the critical period when he'd started his cult. These weren't fringe figures like Reeve Whitson or William Herman. They were well-known and respected in the Bay Area, and even better for me, they were still alive. So when I plunged into their stories with Manson and found evidence of serial dishonesty, again, often connected to federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies, I had to ask myself if I was crazy to be doing all of this. The question wasn't whether it was worth it. I thought it was. Assuming the truth could be wrested out of aging scientists, reformed hippies, and dusty government files. The question was how much of myself I was willing to give, irrespective of any consequences to my reputation or well-being. I was haunted by something Paul Krasner, a journalist who'd covered the trial for the legendary counterculture magazine The Realist, had told me after a lunch in the first months of my investigation. At a Venice Beach sushi bar, we'd been discussing our belief that the reasons behind the murders had been misrepresented. Be careful, Tom, he said as we parted ways. This will take over your life if you let it. I'd shrugged it off at the time. Now it felt like a prophecy. But if I wanted my book, or even just my proposal for the book, to be more complete than my premiere piece would have been, I had to let the story consume me. Scott Free in Mendocino. To understand my fascination with Manson's parole officer, you might pick up where we left off, with Susan Atkins. She was plainly pushed around by the DA's office. Her story was cut and polished until it glimmered for the prosecutors, bringing indictments, convictions, and a raft of publicity. The more I learned about Atkins's past, though, the stranger her manipulation became to me. In the years before the family's rise to notoriety, the justice system afforded her a shocking amount of latitude. If anything, she'd gotten away with far too much in those years. When she was on probation, she broke the law regularly. But her arrests never put her in any further legal jeopardy. Instead, there was a pattern of catch and release. Whenever the police brought her in, she'd find herself cut loose within a few days. Why was law enforcement so lenient with her? The events of June 4, 1969, about two months before the Tate-LaBianca murders, are as good a starting point as any. At 3.30 that morning, an LAPD patrolman pulled over a 68 Plymouth for speeding in the San Fernando Valley, ordering the driver to step out of the car. A small, long-haired man emerged, staggering toward him, his arms flailing in wild gyrations. He appeared under the influence of some unknown intoxicant, the officer later reported. It was Charles Manson. He was arrested and charged with driving under the influence, being on drugs, and operating a vehicle without a license.
He had four passengers in the car, all arrested for being under the influence. Thomas J. Walleman, Nancy Pittman, Leslie Van Houten, and Susan Atkins. Within 24 hours, all of them, including Manson, who'd informed the booking officers that he was on federal parole, were released with no charges. All except Atkins. She was held for more than two weeks. The police had discovered a warrant for Atkins, not even a week old. On May 29, hundreds of miles away in Mendocino, a judge had ordered her arrest for violating five conditions of her probation. Atkins had gotten a three-year probation sentence in 1968, after an arrest near Ukiah, California. Now, notified of her arrest in Los Angeles, two Mendocino County Sheriff's deputies drove 1,050 miles round trip to scoop her up and bring her back up north. On June 7, she was booked into the Mendocino County Jail. The state had a strong case against Atkins. She had probation officers in both L.A. and Mendocino, and neither was happy with her. According to their reports, she'd brazenly defied all attempts at supervision since her sentence was imposed. Since she'd received a courtesy transfer of her probation from Mendocino to Los Angeles County, she'd changed her address more than six times without permission. She hadn't sought employment. She'd failed to check in for almost every monthly appointment. And most recently, she'd told the probation office that although she knew it was forbidden, she was moving to the Mojave Desert with her friends, with no plan to return to L.A. Describing Atkins's whereabouts as totally unknown, the probation office's report advised, the best thing is to revoke the defendant's probation as it appears she has no intentions of abiding by it. Despite that recommendation, at a hearing that month, Judge Wayne Burke of Mendocino County Superior Court decided that the defendant has not violated probation. She has complied with the terms. Probation is reinstated and modified to terminate forthwith. She is released. Not only did the ruling defy the probation office, it seemed to reward Atkins's bad behavior, terminating her probation more than two years before it was scheduled to conclude. And off she went, soon to participate in the murders of at least eight people. The fact that she was nearly sent to prison so soon before the killings has never been reported. Hoping to shed some light on the deceased Judge Burke's decision, I found the head of the Mendocino County Probation Office in 1969, Thomas Martin, who'd appeared at the hearing. I also spoke to Atkins's L.A. probation officer, Margot Tompkins, who'd written the recommendation for her revocation. Both recalled their shock at the ruling. Calling it very strange, Tompkins said, Judges almost always went along with a probation officer's recommendation. Clearly, she had not had any employment, no fixed addresses. I have no idea why he would have done that. Martin said he'd never experienced anything like it in 32 years on the job. He was especially galled because they'd gone to the trouble of sending two police officers on the thousand-mile journey to retrieve Atkins. That seldom, if ever, happened, he said. Martin remembered Burke well. He felt the ruling must have some ulterior motive. Judge Burke was not just somebody in the woods, he said. There was something in his mind, something that he knew that he never shared with us. Whatever that something was, 
It had worked to Atkins's benefit before. A year and a half earlier, an entirely different set of probation officers in another state had tried to have her probation revoked, and they met with an almost identical response from a different judge. Atkins was living in San Francisco then. She'd fallen in with a strange man who promised to change her life, and her probation officers weren't thrilled about it. Her sudden infatuation with this Charlie meant she might backslide into the recklessness that had gotten her arrested in the first place, when she'd been found in a stolen car in Oregon with two ex-cons, one of whom she'd met while working as a stripper. It was the end of a crime spree for the trio. They'd stolen the car in California, driven it across the state line into Oregon, and held up a string of gas stations and convenience stores, with Atkins at the wheel. When they were apprehended outside Salem, she told the officer she would have shot and killed him if he hadn't caught them by surprise. Then only 18, Atkins was convicted of being in possession of stolen goods and a concealed weapon. Her three-year probation sentence was transferred to San Francisco, where she promised to clean up her act. And so she had, until the summer of 67, when she'd fallen under Manson's spell. According to probation records, Atkins phoned her San Francisco probation officer, Mary Yates, that November 10, saying that she'd joined a communal marriage with seven other women. They were all hitched to a traveling minister by the name of Charlie, fresh out of federal prison. Atkins and Charlie's other wives, many of them pregnant by him, would soon be leaving San Francisco in a big yellow bus bound for Southern California, Florida, and ultimately Mexico. Yates had been supervising Atkins for a year, and she was surprised by her charge's sudden change in character. True, Atkins had always been flighty, but she'd also been respectful and polite, and she'd never failed to follow the rules. Now she sounded defiant, if also lackadaisical. She didn't seem to understand or care that her behavior would land her in prison. After that disturbing phone call, Yates wrote to the head office in Sacramento to fill them in. Charlie, she wrote, not knowing his last name, is in love with all of them, and they all love each other. Yates had told Atkins not to leave, but she was certain she will do as she pleases. She recommended getting Atkins in court to decide whether her probation should be revoked. She closed her letter with chillingly prophetic words. Hopefully, she won't get into further difficulties with Charlie and the other seven girls. The phone call had so worried Yates that she got in touch with another probation officer, Emmy Madison of Oregon, where Atkins had originally been sentenced. Madison, who also kept tabs on Atkins, raised an alarm of his own. He'd spoken to Atkins, too, and he didn't like what he heard. Her speech was quite disorganized, he wrote to his superiors, and she repeated several times that love is everything, everything is nothing. He told her she couldn't go. She said she was leaving anyway. The officers tried to track her down to no avail. November faded into December. Feeling they'd exhausted their options, they wrote to the original sentencing judge, George Jones of Marion County, Oregon, advising that the court take action. That was on December 12. Afterward, the paper record abruptly stopped. 
For 23 days, there were no more documents, memos, or court filings regarding the truant probationer. Then, on January 4, 1968, Judge Jones signed an order terminating Susan Atkins's probation. Probation officials in two states had gone so far as to warn Atkins that her return to prison was inevitable. Instead, the judge rewarded her by releasing her from all obligations to law enforcement. As in the later case, there was no record explaining the judge's decision. He knew the nature of her crimes. He knew how serious a threat she could become. Why would he have reversed himself? Why would another judge have followed suit? Atkins hardly seemed the type to win over two separate judges. Only one thing had changed when these reversals occurred. She was with Manson. As long as she stayed on his side, it seemed the rules didn't apply. Roger Smith, the friendly fed. The law afforded special privileges to everyone in Manson's orbit. Once I was absorbed in the family's origin story, I found evidence everywhere of a curious leniency, always helped along by a hand from the outside. Of special note was an incident in June 1968 that earned Atkins her second probation sentence, the one that almost, almost had her off the streets for good before the Tate-LaBianca murders. It began in the small outpost of Ukiah. As the seat for Mendocino County, one of the family's favorite getaways, Ukiah by 1968 had become a haven for hippies fleeing San Francisco, which was no longer the untrammeled paradise it had been a few years before. In Haight-Ashbury, speed was now the drug of choice, and with it came violence, conmen, bikers, dope peddlers, and runaways. Worst were the tourists, who'd started to congregate in the Haight to admire the psychedelic memorabilia for sale. Tie-dyed shirts, make-love-not-war buttons, beads, baubles, and bell-bottoms. Mendocino County, 150 miles northwest of the Golden Gate Bridge, was an oasis by comparison. Rolling acres of land and dense forests of centuries-old redwoods stretched all the way to the sea. Small towns speckled the landscape with a patchwork quilt of groves and orchards. Communes had sprouted up as early as 1965, but they increased tenfold after the implosion of the hate. In early June 1968, Manson sent his girls there to win some recruits for their own commune. The delegation of five women, Susan Atkins, Ella Jo Bailey, Patricia Krenwinkel, Stephanie Rowe, and Mary Brunner, used a technique that they'd refined into an art form. They sought out impressionable young men, invited them to an all-girl orgy, and offered them a plethora of narcotics, including marijuana quietly spiked with LSD. Unfortunately, that day in Ukiah, they snared three underage boys. More unfortunately, one of them happened to be the son of a Mendocino County deputy sheriff. The 17-year-old awoke in a tangle of limbs, extricated himself, and darted home, telling his parents that his legs looked like snakes and that he saw flashes when he closed his eyes. Soon, all five women had been charged with felony drug possession and contributing to the delinquency of minors. They were locked up in the Mendocino County Jail. The outlook was grim for the Manson girls. 
Two of them were already in the probation office's sights. Atkins had just been released from her sentence, and Berners had just begun. But all they had to do was make one phone call, and they were as good as gone. The man they called was Roger Smith, Manson's parole officer in San Francisco, or rather, his former parole officer. At the time of these arrests, Smith had recently left his job, and you'd think he would have severed ties with his one remaining parolee, Manson. But the two had grown close. Smith, who called Manson Charlie, ended up becoming one of the most vital figures in my investigation. More than anyone else, he knew how and why Manson had formed the family, because he'd watched it happen. And legally, he wielded immense power over Manson. He could have sent him back to prison at any time. Instead, he acted more as Manson's guardian. Their bond was such that when Manson's disciples called him from Ukiah that day in June, Smith and his wife decided to drive up to Mendocino County to check on them. They had no professional obligation to do this. Brenner had recently given birth to a son, Michael Valentine, and with the girls in jail, the baby had no one to take care of him. Manson was the father, of course. Michael Valentine, sometimes known as Pooh Bear, was the family's first child. Smith and his wife took an extraordinary step. They got the court to appoint them as Pooh Bear's temporary foster parents, and they returned to the Bay Area with the baby, looking after him for eight weeks. In the meantime, a friend of Smith named Alan Rose repaired to Mendocino County to get the girls out of jail. Rose, a college dropout who met the family through Smith, made a valiant effort. He'd become enamored of the girls. He visited them almost daily, hired lawyers for them, and testified as a character witness at their preliminary hearings. And finally, he raised their bail money, winning their freedom until the trial at the end of the summer. All the while, Manson remained in L.A., ensconced in the comfort of Dennis Wilson's home. He received periodic updates about the girls, but he never seemed terribly concerned. Why should he have been? By that time, he'd been through enough to know that he was golden. With Roger Smith watching over him, crimes had no consequences. In the end, charges were dropped against three of the women for lack of evidence. Atkins and Bruner pleaded guilty to possessing narcotics. In exchange, the charges that they'd furnished drugs to minors were dismissed. Then the court shocked the community by granting Atkins probation instead of sending her to prison. Brunner was already on probation in L.A., or one assumes she would have gotten it too. The 60 days they'd already spent in the county jail was apparently punishment enough. They were free. As we now know, Atkins would violate her probation in June 1969, forcing her to be spirited away from the family and carted back to Mendocino County by police. And her violation wouldn't matter. The beneficent Judge Burke would return her to the fold. No questions asked. Once again, the pattern held. When it came to women in the orbit of Charles Manson, the court was unusually forgiving, ruling against the wishes of police and prosecutors. I wanted to find the reasons behind the court's clemency. 
I called the Superior Court in Ukiah and bought the entire file for the Mendocino case, including the record of the probation investigations for Atkins and Bruner. It turned out that both women had received glowing appraisals and impassioned pleas for leniency from none other than Roger Smith. In his petitions, Smith identified himself as a former federal parole officer, but he neglected to mention that his most recent and final parole client was Charles Manson, the very man who'd sent Atkins and Bruner to Mendocino in the first place. If the court knew about Smith's relationship to Manson, there's no record of it. And the judges weren't the only ones from whom Smith withheld this information. David Mandel, a Mendocino County probation officer who filed the sentencing report for Atkins and Bruner, wrote extensively about Manson and his guru-like hold over the women. And he spoke to Roger Smith, without realizing the two were connected. Neither Smith nor his wife, who'd also advocated for the girl's release, ever saw fit to mention their relationship with Manson. Smith's wife Carol, who divorced him in 1981, denied any involvement in the recommendations, suggesting that Smith had used her name without her knowledge. Mandel put a lot of stock in Smith's word. He was impressed that a former federal parole officer would put his weight behind a slouch like Atkins, whom he described as hostile and possibly vengeful. Smith and his wife swore that Atkins would comply willingly with any probationary conditions. And while Mandel saw Bruner as much influenced and often manipulated by her present group, the Smiths praised her as an emblem of traditional Christian values. Of course, Smith had spent a long time with the family by then. He knew that Bruner and Atkins had every intention of returning to the man who dictated their lives, often inciting them to criminality. And sure enough, when the court let them go, they fled Mendocino immediately for the Spahn Ranch, where Manson was now situated. In 2008, I met with David Mandel in Marin County. I was the first to tell him that Roger Smith had been Manson's parole officer. Of course it should have been disclosed, said Mandel, poring over the documents I'd brought. It's a huge conflict of interest. Mandel remembered visiting the Smiths at their home in Tiburon outside San Francisco. He noticed that the couple cared enough for Mary Brunner to have petitioned for temporary custody of her child. The couple was a major factor in his decision to recommend probation, he said, shaking his head. I should have put two and two together. One other strange fact bears mentioning, even though I've never known what to make of it. Six months after the Ukiah trial, one of the judges, Robert Winslow, lost his re-election bid to the bench. In no small part, according to one insider, because of his leniency with the Manson girls. Winslow resurfaced in Los Angeles. Remarkably, he'd become the attorney for Doris Day and her son, Terry Melcher. It was Winslow who prepped Melcher for his appearances at the Tate LaBianca trial and Winslow, who accompanied him in the courtroom as he testified, incorrectly, about the number of times he'd met Manson. Ironically, Winslow was helping Melcher speak out against the same group he'd helped the year before. Neither he nor Melcher ever made a public comment about the sheer unlikeliness of it all. A totally irresponsible individual. 
Even before I got the probation records, I was convinced that something was off about Roger Smith's relationship with the family. My interest in the federal officer coincided with my deep dive into COINTELPRO and CHAOS, both of which were active in the Bay Area in 1967. I wanted to know everything about Smith and Manson. How had Smith become Manson's parole officer? Why were they so close? And what made Smith so inclined to treat Manson like a harmless hippie rather than a dangerous ex-con? The answers came mainly from a pivotal chapter of Manson's life, one that Bugliosi glossed over in Helter Skelter, The Summer of Love. From the late spring of 1967 to June 1968, Manson lived in Haight-Ashbury, the hotbed of the counterculture. Given how often Manson is characterized as a curdled hippie, a perversion of the principles of free love, you'd think his year in the hate would attract more attention. It was the crucible in which his identity was forged. He arrived there an ex-con and left a confident, long-haired cult leader. It was in the hate that he began to use LSD. He learned how to attract weak, susceptible people and how to use drugs to keep them under his thumb and he internalized the psychological methods that would make his followers do anything for him. This would have been all but impossible without Roger Smith. The two came together in a roundabout way. Manson had been released from Terminal Island Prison in Los Angeles County on March 21, 1967. He'd served seven and a half years for forging a government check. When he stepped out that day, he was 32 and he'd spent nearly half his life in prisons and juvenile detention centers. As Bugliosi would marvel in Helter Skelter, prison supervisors had largely assessed Manson as nonviolent. Though he'd faced juvenile convictions of armed robbery and homosexual rape, and had beaten his wife, these didn't add up, in the eyes of the state, to a sustained history of violence. Nor, as Bugliosi noted, did they fit the profile of a mass murderer in 1969. Another peculiarity? All of Manson's prison time was at the federal level. Bugliosi found this startling. Probably 99 out of 100 criminals never see the inside of a federal court, he noted. Manson had been described as criminally sophisticated. But had he been convicted at the state level he would have faced a fraction of the time behind bars, maybe less than five years versus 17. Within days of his release, Manson violated his parole. Unless he had explicit permission, he was supposed to stay put. He was forbidden from leaving Los Angeles under penalty of automatic repatriation to prison. But practically immediately, he headed to Berkeley, California. Years earlier, Manson had had his parole revoked just for failing to report to his supervisor. Now, for some reason, the police bureaucracy of an entirely different city welcomed him with open arms. When he called up the San Francisco Federal Parole Office to announce himself, they simply filed some routine paperwork transferring him to the supervision of Roger Smith, an officer and a student at UC Berkeley's School of Criminology. Helter Skelter is deeply misleading on this point. Bugliosi writes simply that Manson requested and received permission to go to San Francisco. The prosecutor had a copy of Manson's parole file, so he knew this wasn't true. 
I wanted that file too. After a FOIA request and months of negotiations and appeals, I received a portion of it in 2000. It contained a letter from the San Francisco Parole Office to the Los Angeles office, dated April 11, 1967, three weeks after Manson's release. This man called our San Francisco Federal Parole Office to announce that he had been paroled and was now within the city of Berkeley, California, the letter begins. He had no parole documents. He impresses as a totally irresponsible individual. The institution at Terminal Island tells us that this man was paroled on March 21, 1967, to the Central District of California, Los Angeles. Since this man indicates his intention to stay within the San Francisco metropolitan area for the indefinite future, we now indicate our willingness to accept transfer of supervision to this Northern District of California. And so began Manson's assignment to Roger Smith, whom the ex-con came to revere. As the months passed, Manson granted Smith a special role as protector in the abstruse mythology he'd begun to construct around himself. The hate had introduced him to Stranger in a Strange Land, Robert Heinlein's provocative 1961 sci-fi novel. Manson was obsessed with the book. He carried a worn copy with him at all times. And though he was barely literate, he seemed to grasp the nuances of its dense narrative and its invented language. There's no saying who might have read the book to him or told him about it. But in its hero, Valentine Michael, Manson recognized himself, so much so that he named his first child after him. Roger Smith got a nickname from Manson, too. Jubal Harshaw, the most important character in the hero's life, his lawyer, teacher, protector, and spiritual guide on Earth. The plot of Stranger in a Strange Land has eerie parallels to Manson's rise, so much so that after the murders, fans of the novel went out of their way to disavow Manson's connection to it. Valentine Michael, a human raised on Mars, is endowed with hypnotic powers, he descends to Earth to foster a new and perfect race. Guarded by Jubal, he assembles a nest with about 20 others, almost all women whom he initiates through sex. He demands that his followers surrender their egos to him in a spirit of total submission. They worship the innocence of children and yearn to exist in a state of such pure consciousness that they can communicate telepathically. The group sleeps and eats together. One of their most sacred rituals is the act of sharing water, which takes on vaguely druggy undertones. In Valentine Michael's philosophy, there is no death, only discorporation. Killing people saves their souls, giving them a second chance through reincarnation. The group begins to discorporate their enemies with impunity. In time, Valentine Michael draws strength from the nest and, like Christ, saves the world. After the family was caught, Time magazine picked up on the bizarre parallels between Stranger in a Strange Land and Manson's own nest. In January 1970, it ran a piece called A Martian Model, arguing that Manson had no powers of invention at all. He may have murdered by the book. But Roger Smith approved of Manson's fascination with the novel. 
He thought it was good that Manson saw his own fantasies in it. There was no harm in his desire to become a savior. If that meant that Smith himself took on the role of Jubal, so be it. When we spoke, Smith was hazy on the details of how he became Manson's parole officer. Manson had been assigned to him as a part of the so-called San Francisco Project, an experimental parole program funded by the National Institute of Mental Health that monitored the rehabilitative progress of newly released felons. When Manson arrived in the Bay Area in March 1967, he was attached to the program. And to Roger Smith. Manson's participation in the San Francisco project has never been reported. In part, it explains why the two men had developed such a powerful bond. Because Smith spent much more time with Manson than the average parole officer would. The project studied the relationship between federal parolees and their supervisors. Researchers wanted to know how varying degrees of oversight affected recidivism rates. The six participating parole officers, all of whom had advanced degrees in criminology, were assigned one of three caseloads. Normal, averaging about 100 clients. Ideal, numbering 40 clients. Or intensive, 20 clients. Roger Smith fell into the middle group. He met with his clients once a week per project guidelines. But at some point, his ideal caseload had become even more intense than his colleagues' intensives. By the end of 67, he'd winnowed his set of parolees from 40 down to just one. Manson. I was shocked that Manson had become Smith's one and only client. But I could never figure out why. Hoping to learn more, I interviewed Smith's research assistant from that time, Gail Sadala. Although Smith had assured me that he'd never met Manson before becoming his parole officer, Sadala had a different recollection. Smith told her in 1968 that Manson became his charge because he'd already been his probation officer years earlier, in the early 60s, at the Joliet Federal Prison in Illinois. Admittedly, this seemed all but impossible. Manson had never been in the Illinois parole system, and he'd only been incarcerated in the state for a few days in 1956. But Sadala was convinced that the two had met previously. When I told her that her former boss had no memory of meeting Manson before March 1967, she was stunned. He didn't remember that, she asked. I'm surprised. It was always my understanding. That's why there was this connection. I didn't know what to believe. But if Sadala was correct, it might explain how Manson was able to move to San Francisco without being sent back to prison for violating the terms of his parole. He may have been sent there. Wipe your eyes and see. As a doctoral student at the Berkeley School of Criminology, Roger Smith studied the link between drug use and violent behavior in Oakland gang members. In April 1967, the study had seen enough success to merit a press conference. As the New York Times reported, Smith and his colleagues had found that a gang's drug use, rather than mellowing them out, more often triggered violent behavior. The students wanted to distinguish between gang members who fell into violence because of inherent sociopathic tendencies and those who became sociopathic because of drugs. 
Smith conducted research through his own immersion. He and the other researchers created outposts in the Oakland slums, hanging around at community centers and churches, befriending gang members under less than transparent circumstances. They embraced a participant-observer approach to social research, which Smith would further incorporate into his methods in the years to come. By 1967, Smith was regarded as an expert on gangs, collective behavior, violence, and drugs. Manson, his one and only parole supervisee, would go on to control the collective behavior of a gang through violence and drugs. Smith described himself to me as a rock-ribbed Republican. He never struck me as someone with much tolerance for the counterculture. And yet, it was his idea he admitted to send Manson to live in the hate. He hoped Manson could soak up some of the vibes of the peace and love movement exploding in the district that summer. Maybe it would allay some of Manson's hostility. So Manson moved from Berkeley to hate Ashbury, crashing wherever he could and never paying rent. The hippie movement was nearing its high point. Bohemians were dispensing with boundaries, giving away clothes, drugs, sex, music, and hours of talk about tolerance. Anarchists called for the end of racism, capitalism, and imperialism. The mere act of picking up a guitar had a new ideological voltage. The length of your hair said everything about you. Drawn by the psychedelic aesthetic, teens flocked from around the country to get laid, to try to bring enduring peace to the world, or to try pot and LSD, the latter of which had only recently been made illegal in California. It was a concerted grassroots effort to reject middle-class morality. But where some saw earth-shaking radicalism, others saw only Dionysian excess. George Harrison, of Manson's life-defining band The Beatles, stopped by the hate that summer and came away unimpressed. The summer of love was just a bunch of spotty kids on drugs, he said. A press release for the human be-in, a sprawling gathering a few months before Manson came to town, gives a sense of the era's transformative rhetoric. A new nation has grown inside the robot flesh of the old. Hang your fear at the door and join the future. If you do not believe, please wipe your eyes and see. When Manson went to wipe his eyes and see, he wasted no time adopting the folkways and postures of the flower children. Once he landed in the hate, he dropped acid on a daily basis. It took just one trip to foment the most abrupt change that Roger Smith had ever witnessed in one of his charges. Manson seemed to accept the world after LSD, Smith wrote. Seemingly overnight, he transformed himself into an archetypal hippie. His worldview suddenly inflected with spiritualism. He grew out his hair and played guitar in the street, panhandling and scrounging for food. Although only in his early 30s, he presented himself as a father figure, attracting young, down-and-out men and women as they embarked on the spiritual quest that had led them to the hate. If Manson was eager to portray himself as Jesus, then Roger Smith would have been John. According to one of my sources, no one knew Manson better than his parole officer did. 
It would be surprising if Smith didn't know that his ward was breaking the law. A lot. But he had only praise for his sole client. Mr. Manson has made excellent progress. He wrote in one of several reports he made to the head parole office in Washington, D.C. He appears to be in better shape personally than he has been in a long time. Smith wrote those words on July 31, 1967. At the time, Manson was sitting in a jail cell. A few days earlier, in Ukiah, he'd been convicted of interfering with a police officer in the line of duty, a felony. He'd been trying to prevent the arrest of Ruth Ann Morehouse, a.k.a. Wish, one of his newly recruited underage girls. Though the charge was reduced to a misdemeanor, Manson was given a 30-day suspended sentence and three years probation. The arrest merited only a footnote in Helter Skelter, and Bugliosi didn't say that it resulted in a conviction. Instead of being sent back to prison, Manson, who'd been out for only four months then, was back on the streets again in a few days. That incident continued the distressing pattern of amnesty that Roger Smith could never explain. In part, Smith benefited and continues to benefit from a veil of secrecy. Manson's complete parole file has never been released. It wasn't even permitted into evidence during the trial. During the death penalty phase, the defense's Irving Kanarek had subpoenaed the file, hoping he could use some part of it to argue for his client's life. Not only did the United States Attorney General John Mitchell refuse to release it, he dispatched David Anderson, an official from the Justice Department, to aid Bugliosi in his effort to quash the subpoena. It was an almost unprecedented action. During death penalty arguments, when a defendant's life hangs in the balance, anything that could be introduced to save that life is routinely allowed into evidence. In the courtroom, stunned that the government wouldn't allow Manson access to his own file, Kanarek asked Anderson if it contained information that would incriminate the attorney general. Bugliosi objected. The judge sustained, and Anderson didn't have to answer. Ultimately, the judge upheld the prosecution's motion to quash the subpoena. The file was never allowed into evidence, and the whole episode was excluded from Helter Skelter. The 55 parole documents turned over to me, later 69 after exhaustive FOIA appeals by the Federal Parole Commission, represent only a sliver of Manson's total file, which was described as four inches thick at his trial. Still, those pages have enough raw data to show that during Manson's first 14 months of freedom in San Francisco, months during which he attracted the followers that became the family, he was given virtual immunity from parole revocation by Roger Smith. Under Smith's supervision, Manson was repeatedly arrested and even convicted without ever being sent back to prison. It was up to Smith to revoke Manson's parole. It was ultimately his decision. But he never even reported any of his clients' violations to his supervisors. In interviews with me, Smith claimed not to have known about Manson's convictions in Ukiah, even though it had occurred under his watch. In fact, in the same July 1967 letter that should have mentioned Manson's conviction, 
the letter that lauded his excellent progress, Smith requested permission for Manson to travel to Mexico, where he would have been totally unsupervised for a gig with a hotel band. Smith failed to note the fact that Manson had been arrested in Mexico in 1959, resulting in his deportation to the United States and the revocation of his federal probation. Manson is not to leave the Northern District of California, the parole board responded, noting that Manson's history does not mention any employment as musician and that his record was lengthy and serious. And yet, two weeks later, Smith tried again. He really wanted to send Manson to Mexico. He told the parole board that Manson had been offered a second job there by a general distributor for the Permaguard Corporation of Phoenix, Arizona, named Mr. Dean Morehouse, who wanted Manson to survey the market for insecticides, soil additives, and mineral food supplements. Smith neglected to mention that Morehouse was on probation, regulations barred associations between parolees and probationers, and one of Manson's newest recruits, the father of the 15-year-old whose arrest Manson had tried to prevent three weeks earlier. The parole board rejected this second request, too. Interestingly, at the same time Smith made these requests, he'd launched a criminological study of Mexican drug trafficking for the federal government. He'd attempted to send Manson to Mazatlan, which was, according to the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, the center of illegal narcotics trafficking in Central America. In hindsight, Smith told me when I presented him with the documents, it was not a good decision. Then he reversed course a bit, saying that he probably made the requests just to show Manson they wouldn't let him go. But twice, I asked, and at the expense of your own credibility? He erupted. If you want to be conspiratorial, he said, yes, I was doing research on Mexican drug trafficking at the same time I was trying to send him there. So yes, you could make it look like that. But that wasn't what it was. I wasn't a career PO. I only did it for a couple of years because I needed the money while I did my dissertation. My wife was a teacher, but we had no money. Was I a career committed parole officer? No. Committed or not, Smith had official responsibilities, and the paper trail in its sparseness suggests that these didn't much weigh on him. After those two Mexico requests, Smith generated only two more documents regarding Manson for another five months. Both were simple form letters authorizing Manson to travel to Florida to meet with recording agents. Those interested me for several reasons. First, they violated Smith's orders from Washington. He was to forbid Manson from leaving the Northern District of California under any circumstances. Second, Smith had postdated them, suggesting that he wrote them after Manson had already left town, safeguarding him from another potential violation. And third, there's no sign that Manson and the family ever actually went to Florida. If they went anywhere, the only available evidence suggests it was to Mexico. Smith's letters are from November 1967. On the very day that Susan Atkins's probation officers were frantically trying to prevent her from traveling, she, Manson, and the others were pulling out of San Francisco in their big yellow bus with permission from Roger Smith. 
Manson was required to send postcards to Smith. There's no record that he did. Later, probation reports noted that Atkins and Mary Brunner had said they spent quite a bit of time in Mexico with Manson that winter. Otherwise, their whereabouts for November and December 1967 are entirely unaccounted for. Fourteen Naked Hippies in a Ditch After the Florida letters, the record of Manson's supervision stops for another five months, a period during which Manson reported to Smith on a weekly and sometimes daily basis as he turned his soul-searching followers into programmed killers and planned for a race war. There should be an avalanche of paperwork on Manson from this time. While certainly Smith wrote reports, the Parole Commission released only 12 documents from his 14-month supervision. The Los Angeles portion of Manson's file, covering approximately May 1968 to October 1969, is nearly as incomplete, with 16 letters from agency officials and Samuel Barrett, who succeeded Smith as Manson's parole officer. As few as they are, those letters depict an unmanageable parolee, at odds with the excellent progress described by Smith a year earlier. Barrett once wrote to Manson, Considering the nature of your last two arrests and the suspicion you have aroused with law enforcement in this district, the reflection of your status leaves much to be desired. Despite this admonishment, Barrett was the parole officer Bugliosi singled out for blame at the trial and in Helter Skelter. Not Smith, the foster parent to Manson's baby. Not Smith, the proud possessor of an affectionate nickname from Manson. Not Smith, the parole officer who praised Manson's progress three days after he was criminally convicted. By smearing Barrett, Bugliosi diverted attention from Smith's far graver sins. After all, where Smith's caseload had dwindled from 40 to just one, Barrett had between 250 and 300 parole cases between 1967 and 1969. But in Helter Skelter's more than 700 pages, Bugliosi could spare only 21 words for Roger Smith, whom he never called to testify at trial. Smith told me that he was never questioned about Manson by Bugliosi, the police, or any federal agency, ever. I knew there had to be more papers from Smith's time as Manson's parole officer. Remember, under oath at the trial, Barrett had described Manson's parole file as about four inches thick. I asked the Parole Commission spokesperson, Pamela A. Posh, how it could have been reduced to what I'd been told was only 138 pages and why I could see only 69 of these, extensively redacted. The Bureau of Prisons apparently did not retain all of the parole documents pertaining to Mr. Manson, Posh wrote, conceding that this was unusual. The Bureau had a policy to preserve the files of notorious felons for history's sake. Manson was about as notorious as a felon could be. I thought I'd exhausted my options but then I remembered that Smith and Manson were part of the San Francisco project. Since it was a federal study funded by NIM, it would have required even closer scrutiny of Manson's activities. According to Smith, its clients were to be tracked, 
analyzed, and recorded in a separate file. But it practically goes without saying. That file was missing too. If Smith maintained a close record of Manson, he kept a lot of people in the dark, including his own colleagues. He provided so few details that the parole offices in Los Angeles and San Francisco didn't even know where Manson was living. In April 1968, Smith's carelessness blew up in his face when yet again Manson was arrested. And there was no covering it up this time. Too many papers had gotten the story. When Smith's colleagues at the parole office read about it, they flipped out and tried to do what Smith hadn't, send Manson back to prison. The headline in the Los Angeles Times read, Wayward Bus Stuck in Ditch, Deputy Finds Nude Hippies Asleep in Weeds. Other papers picked up the news too. Their articles were the first to describe what the world would soon know as the Manson family. The Times staff writer, Charles Hillinger, described an Oxnard deputy on a late-night patrol who stumbled on a broken-down bus in a ditch by the Pacific Coast Highway. When he saw the bodies scattered in the weeds, nine women, five men, he thought they were dead. Then he realized they were only sleeping. After running a check on the bus's tags, he learned it had been reported stolen from Haight-Ashbury. Waking the group, he told them to get dressed and wait for the county bus he'd ordered, which would take them all to jail. Before they left, one of the women, later identified as Mary Bruner, said, wait, my baby's on the bus. She went back to pick up her child, then only a week old. He was sick, with grime and open sores all over his body. The article identified the self-proclaimed leader of the band of wanderers as Charles Manson, adding that he was booked on suspicion of grand theft. Bruner was charged with endangering the life of a child. She was later convicted and received two years probation. Within several days, the chief of the San Francisco probation office, Albert Wall, was alerted to an article about the arrest in the Oakland Tribune. Fourteen nude hippies found beside wayward bus. Of course, one of those hippies was a parolee under his office's supervision. Wall flew into a rage, writing to his counterpart in Los Angeles, Angus McEachin, for assistance in finding Manson and sending him back to San Francisco. Wall had to admit embarrassingly that his office's file on Manson was incomplete. But apparently he had been traveling freely between San Francisco and Los Angeles for months. Wall didn't know if Manson had permission to travel, but one thing was clear. He added, in a moment of supreme understatement, regulations weren't followed. Smith's name didn't come up in the letter, but surely Wall had him in mind when he wrote, the officer who was handling the case is no longer attached to this office. Wall also wrote of two more arrests in McEachin's district, noting that Manson had failed to report them, as required. For good measure, he sent a copy of his letter to the head of the National Office in Washington, adding a copy of the Tribune story and a handwritten note. Be sure to read the clipping. There are people like this. You have nothing more important to do. So far, the people like this had yet to suffer any consequences for their actions. Having been found the legal owner of the bus, 
Manson spent one day in jail. Then he was released, along with the rest of the group. McEachin, the chief of the Los Angeles probation office, was not happy about this. He had something of a personal stake in Manson's fate. All the way back in May 1960, he'd been the one to violate Manson's probation for failing to report to his supervisor, sending Manson back to federal prison. He had every intention of following a similar course this time. But he soon learned that while Manson's probation had been easy to violate in 1960, things were different now. In a letter to Wall, McEachin said that Manson had personally appeared in our office to bring us up to date on his adventuresome nature. Claiming to have no interest in money or work, he has over 3,000 friends who are willing to give him any needed assistance. Manson said that he owned the school bus and that he and his girls had been traveling between San Francisco and Los Angeles in it for months. If anyone from the probation office needed to contact him, he could be reached through a friend named Gary Hinman of Topanga Canyon, the same Hinman whom the family would murder about a year later. Manson had gall, but McEachin thought he'd gained the upper hand. Because Manson had since been arrested again, this time on a drug charge. Apparently, he was at that moment sitting in the Los Angeles County Jail awaiting arraignment. Sadly, McEachin was wrong. Manson had been released the previous day. For unknown reasons, the DA had declined to file charges. Not to be deterred, McEachin and Wall tried to rein in their wandering, law-breaking parolee. As the highest-ranking figures in their offices, they had a lot of clout, but not enough to catch Manson. Wall's most vigorous attempt came on June 3, 1968, when he sent a stern ultimatum to Manson's last two known addresses in San Francisco and Los Angeles. The latter belonged to Dennis Wilson. Because Wall didn't know Manson's exact whereabouts, he was forced to give him two options, report to the U.S. probation office in either city immediately. Failure to follow this direction, he wrote, will result in my recommending that a warrant for mandatory release violation be issued. From this point on, you are not to leave your current residence without written permission from a U.S. probation officer. Any permission given you by Mr. Smith, who is no longer connected with this service, is hereby canceled. Give this matter your immediate attention. You have nothing more important to do. Manson defied the orders. Rather than showing up in person, he made a phone call to Wall, who was out of the office, and furious to learn, in a message taken by a subordinate, that Manson had said he was living at Dennis Wilson's place and had been offered a $20,000 annual recording contract by the Beach Boys label. As Wall later wrote to McEachin, it would appear that Mr. Manson is on another LSD trip. Still, at least they knew where Manson was living now. That was a step in the right direction, wasn't it? On June 6, they sent Samuel Barrett, his new parole officer, to make an unannounced visit. As Barrett reported back, Manson and some of his hippie followers, mostly female, had found a haven at Wilson's home. Apparently, Wilson has succumbed to Manson's obsequious manner. Just how deeply had Wilson succumbed, though? Could it really be true that their delinquent parolee had sweet-talked a beach boy into giving him a record deal? 
McEachin must have been relieved to hear from Nick Grillo, the Beach Boys manager. Requesting anonymity, Grillo complained that Manson and his followers are proving to be a threatening factor to the music company. The record label would have been idiotic to have signed him. The parole office decided they had to order Manson back to San Francisco, making it clear that he'd return to prison if he failed to comply. On June 12, Barrett sent a letter giving him 12 days to return. Someone must have intervened. There's no record of what happened between June 12 and the June 24 deadline, but apparently that deadline evaporated. The next letters came in late July and early August. Making no mention of the skipped deadline, McEachin reported to Washington, D.C. that he'd received a phone call from Manson, who had moved on to the Spawn Ranch, where he was receiving free room and board in exchange for his work as a ranch hand. By then, someone above Wall, McEachin, and Barrett must have decided that it was best to just let Manson be. Manson built the family right under his federal supervisor's noses. From then on, the federal government, as well as local and state law enforcement, only backed further away from the group as they more brazenly broke the law. The only one who didn't was Roger Smith. Well after his supervision of Manson ended, he was still writing letters to the Mendocino County Court about Atkins's and Bruner's sterling characters, and he was caring for Manson's son. Smith and his wife even hosted Manson at their home. With all I'd learned, I still couldn't grasp how a rock-ribbed Republican would fall in with an aspirant hippie like Manson, and why their friendship persisted beyond the dissolution of their official relationship. Coda. The speed scene. Smith may have had ulterior motives when he told Manson to move to Haight-Ashbury. As part of his criminology research, he'd been tapped to lead a study on amphetamines and their role in the violent behavior of Haight-Ashbury hippies. The National Institute of Mental Health funded this study, as they had the San Francisco Project. In 1976, a FOIA request forced NIM to acknowledge that it had allowed itself to be used by the CIA as a funding front in the 60s. Smith hoped to learn why some people, but not others, became psychotically violent on amphetamines and to see if this violence could be controlled. The goals of the Amphetamine Research Project, ARP as he dubbed it, were to illuminate three major areas of the speed scene in the hate. The individual experience, the collective or group experience, and the way in which violence is generated within the speed marketplace. Smith studied hippie collectives by observing them in their daily routines, and he enjoined his researchers to participate too. He later recalled that when he was appointed to lead the study, I took off my gray flannel suit and my wingtip shoes and grew a mustache. Soon the kids on Hate Street were calling me the friendly fed and asking me to help them with the law. There's no indication that his technique proved useful, because there's not much indication that the ARP ever happened at all. Smith never published his research. Two papers about the ARP were scheduled to appear in the Journal of Psychedelic Drugs, but they never materialized. The closest thing to a record of the ARP is Smith's unpublished dissertation, submitted to Berkeley a month before the Manson murders. Even this, however, contains no actual participation observation data. 
It is mainly secondhand anecdotes and statistical analysis. But the paper, The Marketplace of Speed, Violence and Compulsive Methamphetamine Abuse, does describe the nature of participant observation, which, Smith wrote, forced a social scientist to break the law. Hiding in a deviant group, he had to convince drug users that they can trust him with information which, in other hands, would place them in jeopardy. And perhaps most important, he must resolve the moral dilemma of being part of something which he may find morally objectionable at best. Probably by association, he could himself be arrested. In a very real sense, he becomes a co-conspirator. With information and insight which, under normal circumstances, the average citizen would be obliged to share with law enforcement, he must try to understand what individuals within the group feel, how they view the straight world, how they avoid arrest or detection. To ensure success, Smith argued, researchers had to protect their subjects from criminal prosecution, concealing their activities from the police and granting them anonymity in all reports. The ARP then had something resembling police immunity baked into its very mission. Smith ran the ARP out of the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, HAFMC, which had just opened the previous summer. Soon, he was spending so much time there that he made a proposition to his only parole client. Instead of meeting with Manson in downtown San Francisco, where Smith had an office, why not just meet at the clinic? It was more convenient for both of them. And anyway, by that time, Manson and his girls had started to contract sexually transmitted diseases. The clinic could treat those for free. Soon, Manson became a mainstay at the HAFMC. Between visiting Smith and receiving medical care, there were some weeks when he appeared at the clinic every day. He became a familiar presence to a number of the doctors there, including several who, like Smith, had received federal funds to research drug use among hippies. Smith got the ARP off the ground at the same time he was supervising Manson for the San Francisco project. It was during this overlap that the record of Manson's parole supervision was either spotty, non-existent, or later expunged. This funny, scruffy little visitor to the clinic, always with his retinue of girls, was taking a ton of drugs and forming the family. By the time he and his followers turned up in that ditch by the side of the Pacific Coast Highway in April 1968, the girls had traded the flowers in their hair for steel knives, sheathed in leather and strapped to their thighs beneath long flowing dresses. I was convinced that Roger Smith had played some part in this transformation. Now I began to wonder whether the HAFMC, with its emphasis on hippies, drugs, and research, had some role too. 10. The Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic Too many Smiths. To tell the story of Manson properly, as I'd argue Bugliosi never did, you've got to familiarize yourself with a dauntingly large cast, as is clear by now. When I was preparing to turn my aborted premiere story into a book, I realized just how frustrating it was to keep everyone straight, to tell the narrative in a way that gave its major players their due without getting mired in details. Because in a sense, the details were everything. 
The lacunae and silences and seemingly irrelevant detours in Manson's life made it clear that he was far more a product of his times and his surroundings than something as outrageous as the helter-skelter motive would have you believe. That motive makes it seem like Manson and the family lived in a vacuum. But during their formative year in San Francisco, by most accounts, they were part of the zeitgeist. To understand that zeitgeist, I had to deal with the sheer proliferation of names. Hundreds and hundreds of names. It's a confusing story to tell because it involves two Smiths, and they ran in the same circles. Both were drug researchers with a sociological interest in the Haight-Ashbury youth scene. On top of Roger Smith, Manson's parole officer, there was David Smith, no relation, the charismatic creator of the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic. You wouldn't think that Manson, a cherry ex-con who disdained conventional power structures, would spend a lot of time at a government-funded clinic, no matter how groovy its trappings. But Manson and the girls were at the HAFMC a lot. When they moved from the disused school bus into a proper apartment, he chose one right around the corner from the clinic. His involvement with the place, and the extent to which it dovetails with both of the Smiths, has been serially unexplored in popular writing on him. Because Bugliosi seemed to have no use for the Smiths, no one else did either. But having seen how crucial Roger was to Manson's development, I knew I had to dive into David's history too. Dr. Dave David Elvin Smith grew up in the dusty farm community of Bakersfield, California, at the southern end of the San Joaquin Valley. When he moved to the Bay Area in 1960 to study at UC Berkeley, Smith was, by his own admission, a hick. He'd never traveled much beyond his backwoods town, and he lacked the political and intellectual curiosity that animated Berkeley's sophisticated international student body. Had it not been for his pushy peers, always scolding him for missing their sit-ins and marches, Smith probably wouldn't have noticed the dawn of the free speech movement on his own campus. Later, he liked to remember a teaching assistant who canceled class so he and the other students could head to a protest downtown. Smith refused to join. He wanted to study for an upcoming test. The TA told him he'd never get an A if he didn't go. Smith has been open about his louche behavior in this period. An inveterate womanizer and a binge drinker, he disappeared for days at a time on benders, nevertheless graduating at the top of his class. At the end of 1965, a debilitating blackout and a messy breakup led him to give up alcohol. By then, Smith, a raffish, good-looking man of 26, was a postdoctoral student at UC San Francisco and the chief of the alcohol and drug abuse screening unit at San Francisco General Hospital. Later, he remembered his curiosity flaring as his research collided with the city's cultural upheaval. I was injecting white rats with LSD in the lab, he said, and then I'd walk home past the hate where I'd see kids who were high on the same substance. He began to experiment with psychedelics himself, and he liked them. The lifestyle brought new friends and new politics. He and his friends tracked the burgeoning counterculture in the hate, 
where some were predicting an influx of 100,000 young people in the coming year. Smith, who felt that health care was a right, wondered where the newcomers would receive medical attention and how they would afford it. He moved to Haight Ashbury himself with plans to found a free clinic. When it opened at 558 Clayton Street in June 1967, the Haight Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, HAFMC, was an immediate sensation. Staffed entirely by volunteers and unauthorized by the city health department, it treated hundreds of patients a day, offering non judgmental care for those suffering from bad trips, overdoses, sexually transmitted diseases, and malnourishment, or for those who just needed a kind ear. Lines at the HAFMC sometimes stretched around the block, with hippies waiting to ascend the creaky wooden stairs to its second floor office. Inside, loitering was encouraged. The clinic did everything it could to advertise its psychedelic affinities. Exam rooms were painted in aqua and day glow orange. One of them was wallpapered with a vibrant collage of peace signs, naked bodies, and hypnotic swirls. Even as Smith struggled to pay the rent and keep the cops at bay, he reveled in his creation. Few things so perfectly encapsulated the utopian ideals of the summer of love. As faces filed in and out of the clinic that summer, Smith and his colleagues befriended the repeat visitors, and the HAFMC became a scene within a scene. It could be hard to tell the hippies apart, with their long, beflowered hair, their upstart communes, their shifting legions of followers and leaders. But decades later, no one at the clinic had any trouble remembering Charlie Manson and his girls. Negate Your Ego In 1971, David Smith published Love Needs Care, a memoir of the HAFMC's germinal years. I found it rife with details about Manson and the family, and about the very period that Bugliosi had omitted from Helter Skelter, the summer of love, when Manson, apparently at his most charismatic, began to attract followers and ensure their unconditional devotion. Better still, Love Needs Care had a few contributions from Roger Smith, offering his own appraisal of Manson. As invaluable as these portraits are, though, I called them into question when my reporting led me to doubt both of the Smiths. The more I reread certain passages, the more they seemed like gingerly public relations efforts. The Smiths had to make it clear that they knew Manson well and that they'd felt some sympathy toward him. There could be no denying that, given how often they'd been seen together. But the book came two years after the murders, when both men had an interest in distancing themselves from that Manson, the murderous one, the metaphor for evil. Love Needs Care attempts the delicate task of elucidating the Smiths' relationships to Manson while making it seem as if they had no idea that he and his followers would someday erupt into unconscionable violence. David Smith described the family's frequent trips to the HAFMC, where Charlie's girls, as they were known around the halls, were treated for sexually transmitted diseases and unwanted pregnancies. The girls tended to Manson's every need, never speaking unless spoken to. They referred to him as Christ or J.C. 
When the family moved to an apartment on Cole Street, Manson began in earnest to reprogram his followers. David had an elaborate sense of Manson's tactics, although he never explained where he got it. Using a combination of LSD and mind games, Manson forced his followers to submit to unconventional sexual practices, Smith wrote. He would invoke mysticism and pop psychology as the acid took hold, saying, you have to negate your ego. Treating the girls like objects, he eroded their independence, turning them into self-acknowledged computers, empty vessels that would accept almost anything he poured in. Before long, they obeyed him unquestioningly. Acid was unmistakably essential to the process. Manson's insistence on it sometimes put him at odds with trends in the hate, David thought. Typically, hippies who dropped a lot of acid eventually moved on to speed. A schism grew in the scene. The acid heads, a phrase David claims to have coined, favored nonviolence, whereas the speed freaks, ditto, caused the rash of violence that destroyed the hate's live-and-let-live ethos. But Manson had an aversion to needles. He wouldn't use amphetamines. The family's drug pattern was effectively reversed, with Manson urging his disciples to relinquish speed and embrace acid. Weaning his recruits from amphetamines reduced the chance of interference with his induction process. Speed became a part of the family's lifestyle only later, David told me, when it came time to kill in Los Angeles. He'd heard this from Susan Atkins herself, when she asked him to assess her mental health for a parole hearing in 1978. When they went to the South, they got very deeply involved in speed, he said. They got it from the Hells Angels. They were trading sex for speed, and Atkins thinks that Helter Skelter and the ultimate crime was a paranoid speed delusion. Bugliosi kept any mention of the family's speed use out of the trial. David thought he understood why. It risked presenting mitigating circumstances for the prosecution. And the defense didn't want it coming up either. No one wants his or her clients to look like addicts. Both the Smiths have said that Manson's fear of needles made speed a non-issue. But obviously, speed can be taken orally or snorted. Over the years, a smattering of evidence and first-hand recollections has suggested that the family used amphetamines more often than was suggested at the time. In a 2009 documentary, Linda Kasabian claimed that she and her companions each swallowed a capsule of speed before leaving for Cielo Drive on the night of Sharon Tate's murder. At the trial, she testified that she hadn't taken any drugs around the time of the murders. In books and at parole hearings, Susan Atkins also later copped to taking speed before the Tate murders. Tex Watson wrote that he frequently snorted it with the group, and that he too took it on both nights of the murders. Others added that the family kept an abundance of speed at the Spawn Ranch toward the end of their time there, and that Manson himself wasn't above taking it especially as he grew more paranoid. He would use it to stay up for days at a time, brooding on his delusions. Remember, Manson lived in the hate because Roger Smith sent him there, thinking its vibes would assuage the ex-con's hostility. And make no mistake, Roger did believe that Manson was hostile.
In a short essay for Life magazine, published months after the murders, Roger offered his first-ever insights about Manson. He speaks of Manson here out of his extensive, unofficial contact with him, the magazine noted, without describing the nature of that contact or any potential conflict with Smith's parole duties. Charlie was the most hostile parolee I've ever come across, Roger wrote. He told me right off there was no way he could keep the terms of his parole. He was headed back to the joint, and there was no way out of it. Roger would seldom write or speak about Manson again, wanting to distance himself from his most infamous client. When I first spoke to him in 2001, I was only the third reporter to do so. But his remark about Manson's hostility always stayed with me. I'd already seen, after all, how he'd characterized Manson in official parole documents as a well-behaved guy making excellent progress. The disparity suggested that Roger had been willing to sweep Manson's hostility under the rug. In a passage he contributed to Love Needs Care, Roger did his best to support the idea that the bizarreries of the hate suited an ex-con like Manson. Daily LSD trips made him mellower, more thoughtful. He still had the slick duplicitousness of a con man, and he was still a master manipulator. But he was suddenly fond of vacuous self-help bromides, like, if you love everything, you don't need to think about what bothers you. Roger Smith couldn't seem too credulous, so he made sure to note the messianic tilt of Manson's acid days an oblique acknowledgment of Charlie's growing megalomania. David Smith mirrored the sentiment, writing that Manson's LSD trips replaced his underlying depression with a manic smile that sometimes betrayed darker philosophies. David admitted that Manson began to develop a number of delusions as his involvement with LSD progressed. He fantasized about the Beatles ordaining him their musical equal. He imagined a judgment day when blacks would slaughter whites. Some of Roger's familiars, including his wife, couldn't understand his affinity for Manson. Roger was pretty much in awe of Charlie's ability to draw these women to him, one said. Another thought that he was always kind of fascinated with the charming, charismatic sociopath. After Manson's role in the Tate-LaBianca murders came out, Roger allowed that he had made an error in bringing him to the hate. But at the time, the family enjoyed a remarkable kinship with Roger. They swarmed over Roger Smith and often filled the clinic reception room, David Smith wrote, bringing operations to a standstill. Roger didn't mind the adulation, in part, David claimed, because Charlie frequently offered him the services of his harem. Roger declined this offer. Among the HAFMC alumni I spoke to, the understanding was Manson had visited the clinic on many occasions to see Roger for their mandatory parole meetings. Roger himself would later claim that the family simply came by out of the blue for no particular reason, and that they didn't begin seeing him there until after his duties as Manson's parole officer had ended. In either case, something about the arrangement didn't sit well with me. One reason the HAFMC was free, after all, was that David, Roger, and their colleagues had received private and federal grants to conduct drug research there. The Smiths were both studying amphetamines and LSD. 
the latter being the crucial component in Manson's reprogramming process. How had an uneducated ex-con, someone who months ago had never taken acid and maybe never even heard of it, come to use the drug to such sophisticated ends? And wasn't it suspicious, at least, that he was coming to the HAFMC to see two people who were studying that very phenomenon? The use of drugs to control and change behavior? At least one friend of Rogers had foreseen that it would be a conflict of interest. I always thought there would be problems. Another noted, Roger had really made a career at that point in trying to help Manson. He was going to soothe the savage beast. Instead, the beast grew more savage than ever. Frenzied Attacks of Unrelenting Rage When he launched the HAFMC, David Smith left a loose end dangling in his past. He'd never actually received his PhD in pharmacology. He'd completed a two-year research project on amphetamines and their effects on groups of confined mice, but he never finished his dissertation. Although he shrugged off the laps, he'd already completed medical school after all, and he'd taken quickly to his new life in the hate, it surprised many of his closest friends. And in our interviews, he was reluctant to admit it. It wasn't like him to leave something undone. Even in its unpublished form, Smith's research on mice defined him creating the larger-than-life personality who would eventually be known as Dr. Dave. In my obsessive way, I found as much of this research as I could. I saw that Smith had published a brief article based on his study in the HAFMC's own house organ, the Journal of Psychedelic Drugs, in 1969. It wasn't nearly as robust as his full thesis would have been, but it gave me something to go on. Before long, I was noticing parallels between Smith's mice and the family. At first, I was inclined to disregard these as the product of my more speculative side. I saw no purpose in linking the behavior of mice in a controlled experiment to the behavior of people in the world at large. But I took another look when I saw that Smith himself had made such a connection. He spoke of his mice as proxies for human beings. His research started with 16 albino mice. With the assistance of other researchers, he separated these into two groups of eight in aggregate settings, small, closely confined communities intended to simulate crowding. Then he injected the mice with amphetamines. Over the next 24 hours, they transformed from docile animals into frantic combatants, fighting one another until they died, either from injuries, self-inflicted wounds from overgrooming, or simple exhaustion. The violence was unremitting. Smith described frenzied attacks of unrelenting rage. Afterward, all that remained in the blood-spattered cages were scattered, dismembered body parts. Simply by confining the animals in close quarters, he'd increased the toxicity of the amphetamines more than four times. In another attempt, some of the mice were dosed with other chemicals, mescaline, chlorpromazine, or reserpine, before they received amphetamine injections. The extra drugs sometimes had a sorting effect, segregating the mice that would kill from the mice that wouldn't. Or they had a soothing effect, all but eliminating the violent tendencies.
Smith told me he'd started his research having foreseen an influx of amphetamine abusers in San Francisco. He didn't say how he'd predicted that influx, but he was right. In the summer of 67, as he opened his clinic, amphetamines exploded in popularity in the hate. When the speed scene hit, it was a total shock to everybody, he told me. Suddenly, what I'd learned in pharmacology relative to amphetamines was applicable to people. Throughout Love Needs Care, Smith draws parallels between the rodents he'd studied and the speed-addled hippies in the hate. The mice on speed, he wrote, become inordinately aggressive and assaultive, turning upon one another with unexpected savagery. Their violent behavior is probably intensified by confinement, for it is strikingly similar to that observed in amphetamine abusers who consume their drugs in crowded atmospheres. In the hate, Smith watched as people living cheek by jowl took huge doses of speed, inspiring paranoia and hallucinations. Once peaceful and well-adjusted, the speed freaks of San Francisco now lashed out with murderous rage at any real or imagined intrusion, assaulting, raping, or torturing to relieve the paranoid tension. Cut off from the straight world, crammed together in inhuman conditions, and controlled by chemicals, Smith concluded, they behaved, quite naturally, like rats in a cage. But when I spoke to Smith, he was quick to discount these parallels. I happened to study amphetamines before they hit the hate, he said. The hate didn't give me the idea. It's kind of like a historical accident. I was studying LSD before LSD hit the hate, too. In fact, according to Dr. Eugene Schoenfeld, who participated in a portion of Smith's rat research in 1965, LSD was an integral component of the project. Smith and his colleagues would inject the rats with acid in hopes of making them more suggestible before he gave them amphetamines. Suggestibility was among the most prized effects of LSD from a clinical perspective. And yet Smith kept LSD out of the official documentation of his research. The article he published in the Journal of Psychedelic Drugs never mentioned acid. I asked Smith if LSD was part of his protocol. He denied it. Then, a moment later, without provocation, he reversed himself. Yeah, I stuck LSD in them, he said. But he couldn't explain why. I was sticking all different kinds of drugs in them, he added. In his recollection, LSD produced disorganized behavior, but not violent behavior. The rats would just wander around in a daze. If you've noticed that I've used rats and mice interchangeably, there's a reason for that. Smith used them interchangeably, too. Even though the two species have vastly different behavioral patterns, especially in groups, in his Journal of Psychedelic Drugs article, he calls them mice. In Love Needs Care and another book he published, they're rats. Schoenfeld insisted that he'd worked with rats during his part of the research. But Smith was adamant that they were mice. And he couldn't explain his confusion on the subject. Like the San Francisco Project and Roger Smith's Amphetamine Research Project, ARP, David Smith's research was funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, NIM. 
which, as mentioned earlier, later acknowledged that the CIA used it as a front for LSD research. And though David never mentioned it in his writing, his work owed a clear debt to the landmark research of another NIM psychologist, John B. Calhoun, who'd studied rat populations since 1946. Calhoun reported that rats in confined groups, even without drugs, became uncharacteristically aggressive. They'd erupt in rape, murder, cannibalism, and infanticide. A dominant male rat emerged in the behavioral sink, Calhoun's term for his aggregated rat cultures, subjugating other males into a tribe of cowering, enfeebled followers and organizing female rats into a harem of sex slaves. The strangest group to emerge was the probers, hypersexualized male rats that stalked and raped both males and females and often cannibalized their young. The probers would commit frenzied and berserk attacks against rat families sleeping in their burrows, leaving the remains of half-eaten victims. Again, no drugs were involved here. The probers emerged simply as a result of their confinement. They deferred only to the dominant male rat, fleeing if he caught sight of them. Calhoun's study was a watershed. In the mid-60s, amid growing concerns about population density, social scientists, politicians, and journalists cited him to explain the riots in America's overcrowded ghettos. His term behavioral sink, defined as the outcome of any behavioral process that collects animals together in unusually great numbers, aggravating all forms of pathology that can be found within the group, entered the scientific lexicon almost right away. David Smith used it extensively in his writing and in interviews with me. Though Smith never mentioned Calhoun by name, his research was essentially a continuation. He sought to control the pathologies of rats, or was it mice, in crowded environments by aggravating them with amphetamines. He concluded that amphetamines were more toxic to rats in groups than rats alone, their crowding essentially exacerbated the effects of the stimulant. And this conclusion, like so much in Smith's research, confused me. I didn't see how it could be objective and unbiased. According to Calhoun, the rat's violence wasn't intensified by confinement, but created by it. So what difference did it make if Smith shot them up with amphetamines? It seemed like the equivalent of studying drunk, inexperienced ice skaters to learn about alcohol intoxication. The novice skaters were going to fall down on the ice anyway, regardless of whether they'd been drinking or not. Plus, the more interesting subtleties of Calhoun's research, the emergence of a dominant male, a harem of subservient females, and an underclass of probers, all of which, it had to be said, sounded a lot like the family, had gone entirely unnoted in Smith's project. I wondered if amphetamines, with or without LSD, had increased the dominant male's grip on his followers. Given how eerily Smith's research prefigured the creation of the family, under David's nose, in the hate, during the summer of 67, I wonder if he had deliberately underreported it. I've never come close to proving that he did, but I haven't been able to explain the holes in it either. 
Why would he use LSD to induce suggestibility in rats before injecting them with amphetamines and making them berserk? Past a certain point, Smith had little interest in helping me sort it out. I was just talking about the parallels to what happened with the Manson family, I said. And when I tried to describe your research, I just kept getting hung up on, well, then why don't you just forget about the research then? Just delete the whole thing from your book. It was important, I said. You're spending way too much of your and my time on it. Take what you want and reject the rest. The Psychedelic Syndrome When Roger Smith joined forces with the HAFMC to begin the ARP, he was picking up where David left off. But this time the research involved people. This meant that both Smiths, and Manson were often in the same place at the same time, with both Smiths having received funding from a federal institute later revealed to be a CIA front. It was, in a certain sense, coincidental, David said of the arrangement. Roger was the head of the Speed Project, and Charlie came to the Haight and visited Roger. He didn't come to be part of the Speed Research Project. It was just that Roger happened to be his parole officer, Details on the ARP and on the pharmacological goings-on at the HAFMC more generally were hard to come by. The reams of record-keeping you'd expect from clinical experimentation simply weren't there. Stephen Patel, a forensic psychologist who'd worked with both Smiths at the HAFMC, volunteered a stunning bit of information that Roger and David had neglected to share with me. The only thing I remember about ARP was that it got burglarized one night and Roger lost all of his files, Patel told me. Their disappearance had been jarring, in part because Roger was an unusually paranoid guy to begin with. He was especially skittish about Manson. After the murders, Roger refused to discuss him with anyone. Patel assumed that Smith didn't want to be blamed for directing Manson to the hate. He felt people were saying that he was the one who put the toxins into the environment. The HAFMC's original chief psychiatrist, Dr. Ernest Dernberg, remembered the theft of the ARP files too. As he recalled, they'd gone missing right after the announcement of Manson's arrest for the Tate-LaBianca murders, and that Roger understandably was pretty upset. Nothing else was taken from the HAFMC which led the staff to believe that the police or some federal agency might have removed the files. These were research papers, he reminded me. It didn't make sense for someone to steal these things when they didn't inherently have any value to the average individual. It seemed to have a more nefarious purpose. The Smiths both denied that the theft had ever happened. You're dealing with aging memories, David said. But Dernberg and Patel... Full-time doctors, and credible sources, I thought, stood by their stories. They were absolutely stolen, Patel said. Dernberg, perturbed by David's insinuation about his faculties, told me more that he remembered. It was a considerable amount of research. The premier amphetamine research conducted at a street level. It would have been very important to the clinic, and it disappeared. Call David. Ask Roger if he has the files or knows where they are. Both men said they had no idea. What have survived 
or the many issues of the Journal of Psychedelic Drugs, the HAFMC's in-house research organ, still active to this day. David Smith founded it in 67, and at various points, both he and Roger served on its editorial board. In the late 60s and early 70s, the journal printed a raft of articles by David and other clinicians about the long-term effects of LSD and amphetamines. One of these articles hoped to find out whether a dramatic drug-induced experience would have a lasting impact on the individual's personality. Another observed that feelings of frustrated anger led people to want to try LSD. The soil from which the flower children arise, the authors wrote, is filled more with anger and aggression, thorns and thistles, rather than passion and petunias. Under emotional pressure, acid could induce images and sensations of anger or hate magnified into nightmarish proportions. David Smith had studied these same phenomena, formulating an idea that he called the psychedelic syndrome, first articulated in 1967 or early 68. The gist was that acid when taken by groups of like-minded people, led to a chronic LSD state that reinforced the interpretation of psychedelic reality. The more often the same group of friends dropped acid, the more they encouraged one another to adopt the worldview they'd discovered together on LSD, thus producing dramatic psychological changes. Usually, the psychedelic syndrome was harmless, but regular LSD use could cause the emergence of a dramatic orientation to mysticism. And in people with pre-psychotic personalities, Smith wrote, LSD precipitated a long-term psychological disorder, usually a depressive reaction or a schizophrenic process. Had Smith seen this syndrome in the family? After Manson had been arrested for the murders, David wrote, Charlie could probably be diagnosed as ambulatory schizophrenic. He said the same thing when I asked about Manson. I felt that he was a schizo. It was Roger Smith who'd had the better diagnosis, and the earlier one, David maintained. Roger said that he knew from day one that Charlie was a psychopath. But Roger apparently never thought it was necessary to intervene, to send his parolee back to prison or to get him proper psychiatric care. Instead, he sent him to the hate and watched him drop acid every day, accruing suggestible young followers as he went. Meanwhile, David was studying the exact psychological conditions that gave rise to the Manson family while he treated them at his clinic. Bugliosi had erased all of these facts from his history of the group. Roger Smith knew that the stereotype of the addicts had a lot of potency in the popular imagination. Casual drug users were regarded as inherently criminal, a tear in the fabric of society. The public's fear of such people was easily manipulated. In 1966, the year before Manson was released from prison, Smith published a criminology paper called Status Politics and the Image of the Addict, examining the propaganda that had stigmatized Chinese, or Oriental as he put it, opium smokers in San Francisco in the early 20th century. Citing police files and strategy manuals, Smith described an organized effort to cast opium addicts, who were by and large peaceful, 
as insidious deviants who posed a threat to society. To this end, some agents were assigned to pose as drug addicts and infiltrate the opium scene. Their objective was to characterize the addict as a dangerous individual likely to rob, rape, or plunder in his crazed state. And it worked. The once invisible opium users of San Francisco's Chinese ghettos were, by 1925, depicted in the media as crazed dope fiends. The shift in public perception allowed the police to crack down on the Chinese population, deporting or institutionalizing the undesirables. Smith neither valorized nor condemned these efforts, but he noted that they were effective. The Orientals, he wrote, were viewed as a threat to the existing structure of life in this country. Tainting their image meant that they could be differentiated and degraded to the satisfaction of society. It's not hard to see how such research could be applied to Haight-Ashbury hippies in the late 60s. Most Americans frowned on acid, as they frowned on all drugs. But it took Charles Manson to give LSD new and fearsome dimensions. Suddenly it caused violence, and the hippies who used it were perceived as wild-eyed and dangerous where once they'd been harmless, if vacuous, pleasure seekers. The HAFMC's goal, free health care for everyone, was an unimpeachable part of the hippie ethic. And there could be no doubting that David Smith and his volunteer doctors had improved the community. But just because the clinic had free in its name didn't mean that it had no cost. The place served as a gateway between the hippie world and the straight world, affording doctors a closer look at the hierarchies and nuances of the counterculture. In exchange for their free healthcare, patients were held up to the light and scrutinized by eager researchers. David Smith, chief among them. Emmett Grogan, the founder of the Diggers, was one of a few observers who saw something amiss behind Smith's idealism. The Diggers were an anarchist group known for providing food, housing, and medical aid to runaways in the Bay Area. Smith liked them, and he worked with them at a free infirmary based out of their happening house. It inspired his own clinic. But as Grogan wrote in his 1972 memoir, Ringo Livio, the admiration wasn't mutual. At least, not for long. Smith soon began his own self-aggrandizement. He appeared more concerned with the pharmacology of the situation than with treating the ailing people who came to him for help. Grogan noticed that he kept detailed records about drugs and their abuse. These he used to secure funding for the HAFMC, which he opened only six weeks after he joined the diggers' operation. Grogan saw through the HAFMC's mission statement right away. Just because no one was made to pay a fee when they went there didn't make it a free clinic, he wrote. On the contrary, the patients were treated as research subjects, and the facility was used to support whatever medical innovations were new and appropriate to the agency. Of course, one of these patients was Manson, who became one of David Smith's research subjects as well. He was such a special case that Smith tracked him far beyond the walls of the HAFMC, sending his top researcher all the way down to Los Angeles, where Manson and his ranks of followers had set up shop on the time-worn western sets of the Spawn Ranch.
The Group Marriage Commune. You might remember the name Alan Rose. It was Rose who dropped everything and went to Mendocino County in 68 when several of Manson's followers wound up in jail there. That trip was only a prelude to his deeper involvement with the family, which saw him embed with the group to study their sexual dynamics, or just to get laid, depending on whom you ask. Rose was a friend of Roger Smith. He'd helped set up the ARP. But he was even closer to David Smith, who told me, Al was like my disciple, and I was like his father. A former rabbinical student, Rose had dropped out of college in Ohio to move to the Hayden 66 when he was 21. He became the HAFMC's head administrator and a research assistant at various times to both Smiths. Rose and David went on to co author three studies of the Hate's drug culture in the Journal of Psychedelic Drugs. Like the Smiths, Rose had an intuitive grasp of the population and a clinician's knowledge of the drugs they were taking, even though he had no formal medical training. While reserved and socially awkward by many accounts, Rose enjoyed the Hate, especially its sexual openness. He felt inexperienced in that regard. 